Forrest, to be fair, this section was was especially horny the last time that we recorded it as well, because just that was the year that was the year twenty nineteen, so, different time. Forrest, it's horny on its face. <laughs> Objection, counselor. This, this section of the novel is horny on its face. This is a, this is this is the 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 the, the, the um shit. Um, <laughs> what's the Latin thing in rhetoric? Fallacy of of reductio ad horniam. <laughs> Story of sapphic desire. Oh my god, how is the Latin phrase I made up not reductio ad horny cum? <laughs> okay, uh, well, friends, we're back. It's the Dan Brown Code, the podcast that can't stop coming to you uh, every two weeks and or every six months. Is that how you want uh, to start rain, this? snow, gloom of night, coronavirus, anything. We're, we're, you can't stop us. We can't be stopped. Unstoppable, unkillable. That's right. I'm Forrest. Unbreakable. Uh, uh, I'm Lena. Hello. And uh, <laughs> we're starting back at chapter nine of The Lost Symbol, a book that we've both read recently. <laughs> I think you'll find um, definitely, definitely both read recently. So, uh, can we talk a little bit about th- this? Uh, we're having like a Bernstein Bear situation here where we're both certain that we already recorded this episode. I went back to the records. Oh, uh, gang, I've been I've been studying for six months now as an archivist, so I went back to the records, as we say. That's right. I went through my text messages on my cell phone, and on August 8th, we definitely recorded a podcast episode. However, there is no digital evidence of this aside, well, I guess aside from the text messages, there's, as far as I can tell, no digital evidence on my computer remaining that this actually occurred, even though I'm positive it did. Oh, this is um, so bizarre. What could have happened? Yeah. I, I have no we have idea. A, we have a real lost um, episode on our hands. Yeah, like we've had we've, we've had like lost episodes before that we knew happened and got lost, but then we've had this just ghost episode where um, <laughs> I I could have sworn we had two banked when I went to edit the last one. Yeah. And then I couldn't find a second one. And I was like, Lena, didn't we record a second lost simple episode? She was like, N- we did not do that. And I said, I thought we did that. And then I was rereading the section for today. And I was like, we have definitely talked about this, but I had fully convinced myself that I was in some kind of um, just creating memories out of whole cloth in my mind of having talked to Lena about this book because all we do is talk about Dan Brown together. That's right. So I was like, maybe, maybe I just imagine these conversations. But no. But no, um, we, we certainly did. And I, I, you know, upon revisiting some of the characters and the interactions and the homoeroticism, um, we absolutely had this conversation. But it was so long ago that why not just have it again, you know? Yeah. I, it's going to be fresh this time. It's going to be new. Um, I hear that last week, possibly two weeks ago, um, Lena, you personally made sure that the ICC is going to be able to investigate U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and possibly presage an invasion of the Hague. Is this true? Yeah, I, I personally, from a court that is not the ICC, made sure that that happened. Yeah. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I wield a lot what, of... What, sorry. What court are you working for? I'm at the IRMCT, which is the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals. And what that court is, it's the successor court to the court on Yugoslavia and the one on Rwanda. So initially, when people used to say, we're taking them to the Hague, 
like the OG war criminals of like Bosnia would go to the ICTY. So that's what I'm. That's where I am. ICTY, um, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, for the former Yugoslavia. So as you may recall, last time in the Lost Symbol, we met up with uh, Robert Langdon. Bobby and got Langs. summoned by his old friend Peter Solomon to come give a surprise lecture in Washington, D.C., the capital of this great nation. Um, and it turned out the event he was supposed to speak at wasn't actually occurring, even though he was invited by the secretary of his old friend and mentor, Peter Solomon. Um, and... Then he got a call from an unidentified individual who said that Robert Langdon was actually here because he wanted Robert Langdon to be there and not Peter Solomon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's in the middle of that phone call right now. Yeah. Uh, So he's in the statuary hall of the U.S. Capitol building, and he's talking to a figure that I think we, the audience, are smart enough to realize is Malach. If not through context clues definitely through his silky calm whisper yeah again like it can't be emphasized enough the degree to which malach is sexy mysterious all these things um he does overuse ellipses in this section so everything here is just very ominous and he likes to kind of speak in riddles uh i listened to the last podcast last episode and I'm making a promise to myself to be less horny this episode. So we're going to try really hard. Yeah. Listener uh, at Chris's Poopin got on my case because this year, 2020, I have proclaimed to him is uh, the year of the monk because <laughs> my, my, my present apartment in Boston is not unlike a monk's cell. Um, it's quite small. My one window is a skylight. <laughs> um, it's going to be really hellish during the summer. Um, and I, I'm sleeping on a, on a little twin bed in the corner. And so it's just a year of um, uh, asceticism, I think. And so he was like, oh, there's a lot of horniness for Malach in the year of the monk. And I was like, dog, we recorded this in June of 2019. <laughs> Which was um, hot girl summer, as we all know. Exactly. But now it's 2020. It's a year of restraint. It's a year of calmness. It's a year of... It's a year of social distancing. Social distancing. (laughs) Exactly. So our social distancing is going to include Malach, um, who's just a guy as far as I'm concerned. Just Just a a regular guy. And normal. And good and normal. So yeah, Robert picks up the phone and Malach is just, do not be alarmed, Professor. You've been summoned here for a reason. So they have this conversation, um, and, you know, he gives away the game. He's like, look, uh, uh, you're trapped. Um, you've been bamboozled, hoodwinked, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and now, rather than being called for the greater good, he's being, you know, pressed into service against his will, Robert Langdon, I mean, um, which is different for him, right? Sort of. I mean, he gets kind of dragooned into most of his adventures. Da Vinci Code, he's got kind of randomly called to the Louvre in the middle of the night. It was like, hey, um, this guy has uh, some, some, some like anagrams written on his chest. And he was like, oh, fuck, I guess I got to get press ganged into this. Oh, Angels yeah, and demons. He was framed How for murder. Wa- right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, in Da Vinci Code, sort of. Like uh, Jacques Saunier's 
trail of clues made it look an awful lot like Lane was the murderer and Bezu Fash picked up on that. Mm-hmm. And Angels and Demons, how did he get involved in that? He was also kind of press ganged into that one, wasn't he? Because like, yeah, cause, because, because the Vatican police just like shows up when he's swimming laps at Harvard and is like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you've got to yeah. come to Italy. Oh, that is a gruesome book. I forgot how nasty that book is. Yeah. Anyways, and this time, this time, this guy on the phone says that Mr. Solomon, who's Robert Mentor's, Robert Langdon's mentor and daddy figure, mm-hmm. um, he's trapped in an unfortunate place. He's in the Araf. Does that mean anything to you? No. So apparently it is a surah of the Quran, um, Al-Araf. I'm, I'm a very bad Muslim. That's okay. All right. Um, I, didn't, I only know it because I Wikipedia'd it. Um, he then says the Araf Hamastagon, the place to which Dante devoted the canticle immediately following his legendary Inferno, which is, first of all, a normal way to talk. Um, <laughs> it's also not really true. So as far as I can tell, I didn't actually... I couldn't find a great online version of the Quran to read in English, mm-hmm. but as far as I can tell, the Araf um, translates to the heights, and it's like some kind of place where you're in waiting before going to paradise, and so it's not a positive or negative thing, it's just like a um, liminal place, and that's also what Hamastagan is, but in Zoroastrianism, so what he really means here is limbo, because it's a place in Catholic theology, although I don't think like totally officially recognized, but it's it's unlike purgatory, not a place where you are temporarily punished and purified. It's just a place where you go and wait for a little while. Um, so so uh, minus uh, points. Sorry. So purgatory is you. That is a destination. Yeah. So purgatory is a place where um, it's kind of like temporary hell, I think. Okay. So in purgatory, the idea is eventually you're probably going to get a good heaven. But in the meantime, you're going to get like temporary hell because you aren't like damned for all time. But you're like damned for a little bit until you're uh, purged, right? Purgatory. You're purged of your Got sin. Got it. But limbo is the waiting punishment. room. Limbo's the waiting room. Okay. And like there's unofficial theology where there's like different kinds of limbo. There's like the limbo of the patriarchs, which is like where Moses goes to because Moses can't go straight to heaven because he wasn't saved through Jesus. Mm. And there's like a limbo for unbaptized infants because they weren't baptized. Um, But like it would be pretty fucked up if it was like, well, yeah, they're in purgatory until Jesus comes back because it's like, it's not right. (laughs) What did they do wrong? How bureaucratic some of these belief systems get. Like they really. It's it, 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 it's 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 astonishing. Um, I often it's think about good. this when I think about the Book of the Dead and like the like application process to go to the afterlife. If you're an ancient Egyptian, um, like you've got to go deal with like director of human resources and have your heart weighed and all of that. It's I, I, it's also I, important to buy a bunch of like little DD miniatures to go do your jobs for you in the afterlife. That's right. And have the right spells to make sure they do your jobs right. <laughs> So you're saying we should smuggle antiquities? Um, man, I've got such a really there's a, such a good Guardian article about that um, about uh, specifically an Oxford professor smuggling out papyruses um, oh and selling them to the Bible Museum, which is extra timely because today the Bible Museum just it just got proven that every single one of their like 27 fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls is a fake. <gasps> oh my God, archivist Pretty news. Cool. Uh, yeah, this is, I've, I follow a couple Twitter accounts that are like, uh, stolen antiquities based. 
I recently listened to an excellent podcast about Hobby Lobby and how many Solon Antiquities they purchased for their Bible museum. I mean, that's the, the Oxford ones that got smuggled out are um, directly, re- directly related to that. Oh, There's also they? a pretty good book that came out last year called Bible Nation that's um, the same, same idea. Anyways, um, so <laughs> back to the lost symbol. <laughs> so the man's religious and literary references solidified Langdon's suspicion that he was dealing with a madman. Langdon knew the Inferno because no one escaped Phillips Exeter Academy without reading Dante. And like, you don't have to go to the Phillips Exeter Academy to know the canticles of the Divine Comedy. We all know them. I went to public school, motherfucker. You can't fool me. I found a... Sorry, I'm taking us off topic again, but I found a very pulpy... God forbid. Um, <laughs> a murder mystery series that takes place in Venice. And I'm not going to buy all these paperbacks and just have them take up space, but I will have them take up space on my Kindle. So it's been the best thing. Is it like modern Venice or like old Venice? Like the 90s. Okay. It's real interesting. That Especially since good. Venice doesn't exist anymore. What doesn't exist anymore? Venice. I think it's still there right now. Well, it's been shut down for a month. Who knows if it even exists? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Oh, I'm touching my face. Fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> um, Langdon's confused by this in-between thing that he says Peter Solomon's in, and Malach gets kind of like existential about it, and he's like, oh, there is a world between... Uh, he could be either dead or alive, depending on your actions. And the upshot is that he wants Langdon to give him access to something quite ancient, which is to say ancient secrets that have been entrusted to him. And Langdon's like, I, buddy, I don't know about the Holy Grail, which is a lie. Um, <laughs> and Malach is like, shut the fuck up about this Holy Grail bullshit. <laughs> I'm interested in uh, bigger questions than that. I'm interested in an ancient portal, <laughs> you dumb bitch. <laughs> and Langdon's like, oh, God damn it. I hate ancient portals. I don't understand anything about them. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and we're going to find out later that, like, it is profoundly fucking stupid that Langdon doesn't even, like, have a clue what this guy's talking about. But anyways, um, he's still like, what the fuck? I, I, I don't get it. Uh, and Malak is like... Well, unless you figure it out really fucking quick, then uh, Peter's not going to make it. In the meantime, he will point the way. Well, he gave a little, like, first he says, like, it's not me who chose you to do this. It was Peter Solomon. So apparently Solomon was like, if you're looking for the portal, you have to find Robert Langdon. Just before he slipped into hum, what's it called? Hamistagon. 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 I don't I I don't know how to speak um I assume old Farsi, old Persian. I think that's what most of the Zoroastrian shit's written in. Um anyways, uh but yeah, it's gonna become very apparent that like the fact that Langdon hasn't clocked what's going on at this point is preposterous. <laughs> and so yeah, Peter will point the way and he's like, I thought you said Peter was in purgatory and Moloch says, As above, so below and Langdon's like, oh, damn, that's uh, a reference to a hermetic adage that proclaimed the belief in the physical connection between heaven and earth. And it's like, shut the fuck up. What does that mean? Um, what does he mean? It doesn't mean anything. It, doesn't mean it anything. just means... It's just like, <laughs> realize, realize, realize. Like, that's, it's, that's it's, all it's, that's it's going It's just on. like extreme... 
It's very frustrating. Oh, gross. Um, and then from the from the rotunda of the Capitol, Langdon hears screaming. Oh, I love. And that's a chapter a, break. Oh hell yeah! Thank you, Dan Brown. All right, so he runs into the into the Capitol. This is chapter ten. Yeah, yeah. and what does he see there? Just an ordinary object, and he's like, "Why is everyone upset about this?" Well, it turns out someone pulled something out of a sling and left it there, and what he sees is a mannequin hand. Forest? No. Yeah, obviously. He's <laughs> like, oh, why is everyone worried about this? Like someone just left one of those like little art hand mannequin things uh, here in the middle of the Capitol Rotunda. And you know he no goes on about handikins for some time. <laughs> yeah, he complains about college students putting them around with their middle fingers up because college students are fucking idiots. And it's like, whomst among us would not do this? <laughs> mm. um, I recently went into a, a shop called Flying Tiger, which is like an Ikea for office supplies, um, which is just, it's all very cute. And there was a bin of handikins and then a smaller bin of smaller handikins. So you could have mm. like, you know, you could just have a, a travel handikin and I shit you not, 80% of them were with their middle fingers up. That's the only thing to exactly. do. A universal instinct. <laughs> uh, but Langdon, as he gets close, he's like, oh no, this isn't this very normal thing I automatically assumed it was because, you know, we just see him lying around everywhere all of the time. At Harvard, handikins on handikins. <laughs> It's true. I was on. I was. I was uh, near the Harvard campus in Harvard Square a couple weeks ago, and I was like, "Fuck! You cannot walk a step around here without <laughs> tripping over a hand again." Um, but Langdon's like, "Oh fuck! No, this this plastic surface is not smooth like most hand <laughs> He touches it. No, he sees it. He looks no, at it. No, he draws okay. nearer. He's like, "Its surface is like um, mottled and wrinkled, kind of like real skin." Oh fuck! And then he saw the blood, and it's like. Come on, dude. Uh, this how is... did you miss? How did you miss these things before? Now we get into some like old school Robert Langdon grossness. I don't remember if Da Vinci Code was this gross. Do you? Um, I don't think so. I, there was nothing grossness. like the angels and demons like getting someone's retinas pulled out thing. Yeah, that's nasty. And then, uh, uh, what's it called? In um. Does it, no. Digital Fortress. Thank you. <laughs> Digital Fortress. Uh, Digital Fortress. <laughs> we see, you know, we hear about the body frying and getting soggy on the thing. That was nasty. <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> you hate to see it. So we're getting some some gore here. I think you're building up too much. This is this is weakling gore. At I... least for someone with an iron stomach like me. Yeah. It's upsetting, Forrest. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you want to read it? Sure. The severed wrist appeared to have been skewered onto a spiked wooden base so that it would stand up. A wave of nausea rushed over him, and me, for the record. Langdon inched closer, unable to breathe, seeing now that the tips of the index finger and thumb had been decorated with tiny tattoos. The tattoos, however, were not what held Langdon's attention. His gaze moved instantly to the familiar golden ring on the fourth finger. Can you tattoo a, a severed piece of body? Um, I mean, I assume so. I don't see why not, but I also feel like... But in this case, my assumption is that he applied the tattoos before he severed the hand. Oh. But I might be wrong there. Um, 
it's also going to be important that the hand is posed such that the index finger and thumb are like pointing skyward and the remaining fingers are kind of curled up into a loose fist. It's like he's doing a kind of... It's like, you know, uh, in Smash Mouth's song All Star, when she has her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead, it's that. That's what's going on. Yeah, but with the thumb a little more up to be close to parallel with the index finger. In the shape of an upside down seven on her forehead. In the shape of like a J. Fine. Yeah, okay, I'll take it. Um, chapter 11, we're back with Catherine Solomon, who, as we may recall, was going into the office at the Smithsonian Museum Support Center. Um, and the thing that I noticed today as I was writing down some notes here mm-hmm. is that the Solomon family has some weird policy where A, their um, last name is, you know, a monarch with a uh, by name. Suleiman the Magnificent mm-hmm. or just Solomon the Wise. Okay. And then both of their kids are Russian czars who are the great because there's Peter Solomon, Peter the Great, and, and there's Catherine. Catherine Solomon, Catherine the Great. Anyways, they're like Italian or Greek or something. Um, they might be some other Mediterranean something. Mm-hmm. It's never quite clear. At least I don't think it is. Uh, but they're not Russians. I don't know why they're doing this Russian czar shit. Unless, <laughs> um, are you are you familiar? They have with, a triplet um, named Alexander. No. Fact. No. What's um? Cause, sorry, I'm gonna take us on a very stupid digression. <laughs> Can't wait. Um, this is what I live for. Have you heard of the new chronology by Edward Winter? Have not. Uh, ex- expounded by this Russian guy called Fomenko. It's this, this Russian conspiracy theory okay. to which uh, famed former world chess champion Gary Kasparov subscribes, oh. which is effectively that all of world history prior to the year 1600 is just mostly kind of made up. And like everyone that is actually important that's ever lived in history is like actually Russian. So like uh, Alexander the Great, Russian. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> like Ramses, probably Russian. Oh my god! Napoleon or Napoleon? Napoleon's actually French, I think. He's too late to yeah, too fall late. under this. But like it's it's this bizarre fucking thing, and like it's expounded upon in this enormous series of books. Wait, why though? A, I don't know. What like, does I mean, it serve? it's a conspiracy. I think mostly Russian nationalism. Well, who but who erased who erased the Russians? Uh, from history. I don't know. <laughs> Everyone else who's not as cool as the Russians. Just collectively? But, this is what I run into with the flat earth thing all the time. Because I do the thing where Qui like... Bono? Mm-hmm. Qui bono? I don't know what you're saying. Isn't that who benefits? Qui bono? Oh, yes. Isn't that a legal thing? Yeah. I'm not a criminal lawyer. So, I mean, right now I am. Anyway. <laughs> I'm a flat earth lawyer. <laughs> But they're like, you know, the flat earth, like the UN symbol symbolizes a flat earth. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm with you so far. But, and then they're like, they, they're trying to hide from us that the earth is flat. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And then that's it. It ends right there. And I don't know what it would serve to have a flat earth. Kibono. <laughs> like, like really, like truly, like what, <laughs> what are they hiding under I, the earth? <laughs> like, 
I follow this Twitter account called Cursed Conspira Boomer Images, and a lot of it's flattered <laughs> stuff. You've been on Twitter a lot recently. What happened to Mastodon? Did it implode? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. It's just like no one else is on there anymore. It's hard to find people Aww. on Mastodon. I'm sorry. The, the, the community that got built up, uh, I think there was a lot of infighting that I missed, and then like, you know two of the big servers that were around when I was like mostly on both imploded and now either everyone's gone back to Twitter or else just like, I don't know where they are now. Very sad. This is the problem with the decentralized platform. Mastodon is like, uh, if someone buys the server, in this case it was bofa.lol. And at some point, either someone decided to stop paying for the server space or there was a bunch of infighting among the various mods or some combination of those things. And so once it went away, you know, everyone would always do these posts that were like, oh, message out to everyone who follows me. Here's where I'm going to be um, from now on. So same username, but now I'm at kinzik.me. And then kinzik.me also imploded. Oh, no. Kinzik.me was weird because, like, uh, that was that was the mod of that was just, like, as far as I can tell, just a perfectly normal Japanese person. <laughs> and so, like, the two communities that were, like, parallel on Kinzik.me were just, like, as far as I can tell, perfectly ordinary Japanese people who mostly post about anime. And then just, like, a bunch of, like, weird left psychopaths. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. It was really great. Um, a Republican mega donor purchased a sizable stake in Twitter recently. So that's the problem with a centralized version. Oh, which one? Which Republican me- mega donor? Yeah. Uh, Paul Singer. Okay. Like all high level chess in the US is mostly sponsored by this run guy, Roy Sinkfield, who's also a Republican mega donor. <laughs> cool. Um, and like he used to, and like to some degree, it's kind of fractured um, his like main locations in St. Louis and a bunch of professional chess people who used to work at this place in St. Louis, or at least a couple notable ones, have gone out and done their own thing, mostly because of political disagreements with Roy Sinkfield. Pretty cool. <laughs> uh, um, Lost Symbol. What's happening to Lost Symbol? <laughs> I just wanted to say that the um, the Twitter drama is, like, it's exactly my... That's my city right there. It's, like, subversive corporate takeover law. Um He's trying to get uh, Jack Dorsey as CEO. So, okay, Jack Dorsey. Have of course you haven't, but just on the off chance, <laughs> have you watched Star Trek Picard on CBS All Access at all? I haven't. I'm w- I'm waiting to watch it with David. Okay, when you do, this is not going to be a spoiler. There is this Romulan Tall Shiar agent on there who's like a major character, at least in the first half of it so far. Okay. And he looks fucking exactly like Jack Dorsey. One, let me find a fucking. Um, I'm gonna Google Jack Dorsey Star Trek. Google Jack Dorsey Romulan. Um, I should. How does this not bring it up? What in the fuck? Jack Dorsey looks like. Uh, what's his name? Tyrion from Game of Thrones. He does look like that. He go has... to your Twitter DMs. Or, yeah, go to your Twitter DMs. It goes down in the DM. It goes down. It goes down <laughs> the DM. It goes down. It goes down. Did I ever tell you my mom loves that song? 
anyway. <laughs> I was I was I was watching this show, and I was like, oh, look at this! Like, I don't I don't approve of like a, a Romulan secret agent being like kind of scruffy and sexy. And then I saw this fucking picture of next with Jack Dorsey. Like, oh, I don't want to think of Jack Dorsey as like the sexy Romulan secret agent, but like, okay, they look the fucking same. They don't look okay. Okay, they look they similar look the same, in that they both look vaguely elven but one of them is far handsomer than the other i mean yeah but like also they look the fucking same man <laughs> they they do i recently saw pictures of the lead singer of fun who i guess i've never seen before and he looks just like john mulaney who to think who to thunk oh because fun like the lead singer is not actually jack antonov right jack antonov is just like the main writer yeah okay uh, Nate Roos. That's a band I did not care much for. Although I did like that Some Night song. I had a really cool drum part. Yeah. And that guy sings so high. <laughs> <laughs> that song was good. Music critique but, but the, with Forrest. That guy sings their, so their, high. Their, 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 first, their first big song sucked. What yeah. was the first one? Tonight. It was like, um, yeah, boring, garbage, bullshit. <laughs> Um, Catherine Solomon <laughs> is going to work. Um, she has to walk like a quarter mile to get from the front desk of the Smithsonian Museum Support Center to uh, Pod 5, which is where she works. Mm-hmm. And it's important to know for future action scenes that she has to walk down the street, capital T, capital S, a corridor connecting the building's five storage pods. Um, it's just a big, long hallway. And it's pretty empty and she got to pass these weird pods and she's thinking back on Can when we, her brother first showed her this place i wanted to talk about like, a sentence if, if that's okay, okay with you absolutely um 40 feet overhead a circulatory system of orange ductwork throbbed with the heartbeat of the building the pulsing sounds of thousands of cubic feet of filtered air being circulated that's it that's all i wanted to say is the throbbing yeah, and the I mean, pulsing we've all We've all been walking under HVAC ductwork and seen it literally physically pulsing in movement <laughs> as we walk beneath it. I think we can all identify with that. Um, so yeah, um, you know, she walks by Pod Three and she's like, "Oh, what the fuck's in there? What in the world is that?" But we're not going to learn yet. Oh, because we're like, talking <laughs> it's about called the wet pod. We're in a flashback now. Did you already say that? Yeah, this chapter is like half flashback, half real time because like as she's walking to the hallway she's thinking back and like she's been like weird my brother is late for this meeting he's never late for this meeting yeah they have every week Catherine and her brother practice radical transparency they know everything about each other and all of their like movements and he has no secrets except for when he gave her this pod and we're gonna get into the story of this pod this is also just like that romulan secret agent from star trek picard mm-hmm. who's definitely in a sexual relationship with his sister oh um, wow don't like that <laughs> <laughs> it's not clear they're actually having sex, but like their relationship is certainly sexual. Um, <laughs> she's really hot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, she's she's like flashing back to when her brother first showed her this place, and he's like, you know, there's this big empty pod that we're not going to be using for a few years. It's sitting empty. So I'm actually just uh, appropriating it for you to do these theoretical experiments you've been developing. And she's like, uh, do you know what theoretical means, bitch? <laughs> it means like it's a theory. 
And he's like, no, we can actually do it here. It's this big, empty airport hangar. Yeah, we can do I'm it here. I'm it personally, Sorry, I said so I would it's be like, okay that you're my sister. Uh-huh. What was that? I said, yeah, we can do it here, as per the incest that we discussed earlier. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's only okay <laughs> as long as you're in an unlit airport hangar-sized <laughs> building where God can't see you. Did we mention that the pod number three is a wet pod? Did we talk about that? <laughs> I, I I briefly mentioned it, but not I didn't I didn't fully make notes. Um, and something in there is scary. Yeah, it's scary in there. But also maybe sexy. <laughs> um, fuck! This is the you're the monk. You're the monk, <laughs> Lena. Um, it's a monk girl spring. Yeah, uh, Catherine's like you built me a lab here. Isn't that like nepotism to give your sister this whole fucking building? He's like, no, it's okay because I am paying for it out of pocket. And also my job is to advance scientific research. Uh, but it's also like, this is also a government building this big empty, um, pod, but we don't worry about it. <laughs> He's donating his paycheck to a charity. Isn't he literally the like richest man in the world here? Like, He's one of them. He's like real. He's he. His, their whole family is like um, like unfathomable, like Rockefeller money is what we're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they get to pod five, and he's like, "You sure you're ready to see this crazy shit?" She's like, oh, "He's are such a showman," and it's a big empty room the size of an airplane hangar, waiting for a fleet of Airbuses, and it's totally black in there. And he tells her that the lab itself. Unlike the entire hangar, is small to be heated. It's in a thermally insulated cinder block room um, located in the farthest corner of the pod. Uh, but to get there, there's no light. Okay, I remember this bothered me before. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in the farthest corner. It's like up against the wall mm-hmm. of this room for separation. But wouldn't you just put it in the middle of the room to have it be max- maximally separated? That's correct. Um, what? But Dan Brown forgets that walls have things on the other side. Right? <laughs> and also, like, I went on Google Maps today and looked up how, like, how isolated is the fucking SMSC. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, like, not isolated. It's a 20-minute drive away from the Capitol building. Right. It's, like, in D.C. <laughs> it's, like, in D.C. <laughs> um, it's in a bustling metropolis. It's not, like, out in a desert. Yeah, but, you know, she's got cinder blocks. It's fine. Um, but, like, again, like, what, why not just put it in the middle? You know? Um, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Who are, we to tr- who are we to try to fathom the working? And, like, how fucking crowded can the end of the hallway, the street, be if the only place it leads is to pod five? We'll never know. Um, and the reason it has to be isolated is because Catherine's experiments have to be performed in isolation from extraneous radiation which includes things like brain radiation or thought emissions or like a radio on the other side of the wall whatever yeah and like that's a pretty good indication that the science she's doing is probably bullshit but um you know hey in the fact section (laughs) (laughs) noetic science Uh, is accurate yeah (laughs) or no what did we say we're gonna find out that some more facts are also not correct a little later on did you say accurate um, is that how he describes them? I think that's I think that's right. It's like he a, says he says he says that like all locations things in this described are he doesn't say accurate. I think he just says are real. I don't like that at all. Okay. Um, 
And she's like, how am I supposed to walk to this little cube in the darkness? And he's already walked ahead and he's like, you gotta take a leap of faith. And she finds her way there and we don't find out how yet. Yeah. Also because of a future action scene. There's a fun little breadcrumb Um, trail that leads her there, but we don't know how it works. Um, and so she gets to the cube and she enters in her pin and, um, She's like, where the fuck is Peter? And then that's a cutoff for the next chapter, chapter 12. All right. Let's keep going, I guess. Uh, In this one, we're going to meet Capitol Police Chief Trent Anderson, who is a burly, square-chested redhead with a buzzed haircut and chiseled face, which says to me... (laughs) All um, all the cops are the same. what's What's his fucking name? God damn it. Guile from today. Street Fighter? Uh, not who I was thinking of. <laughs> um, what's the motherfucker's name? He's like in Homeland and he's in um, fucking uh, Wolf Hall and he's in um, fucking... I don't know um, anyone who's in Homeland. Damien Lewis. Damien Lewis. Oh. Um, I don't know I think of, I think of Damien Lewis as Henry VIII in Wolf Hall. Is that my DMs? Uh, this one's in your Google <laughs> chat that we have going okay. on. Uh, this is another thing at Chris's Poopa noted is that at any given time, I'm using three different communications methods to talk to any one person. I don't, you know, I don't think this is the guy. I think Guile is more accurate. Who's Guile from Street Fight? I'm a Mortal Kombat man myself. Gross. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, Guile, Street Fighter. Oh, Yeah fair <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> um, uh, my fiance is a street fighter guy so this is the only fighting game i really know that's not true but m- mostly this one i'm bad at everyone i've ever played um <laughs> anyways trent anderson like everyone in this fucking book wants to watch the washington football team play their game tonight mm-hmm. Uh, kickoff had just happened was intercom buzzed and according to my psychopathic timeline uh this is shortly after seven o'clock i think the game starts at seven o'clock hell yeah timeline um and he's in the tv room watching people in the capitol rotunda Mm -hmm. um yeah there's a disturbance and so he watches as the surveillance footage shows a guy walking up with a shaved head in a green army surplus jacket and a sling. He watches him kneel in the floor, leave something there and walk away. And then he calls an alert. And if we recall, this is a clip he's watching. He's not watching it live. Uh-huh. And so he's he tells everyone in the Capitol to find this guy in the sling and detain him. And he goes to what he thinks is the most likely exit point to cut him off where he sees only a blonde tourist in a blue blazer reading a guidebook, studying the mosaic ceiling outside the house chamber. And he's like, have you seen a bottom with a sling? And he's like, oh, yeah, I think he just ran past me to that staircase over there. Um, (laughs) This Bugs Bunny-ass plot. Got him. (laughs) Um, And then uh, Malach says in bold italic type, transformation it had been so easy <laughs> Bold. Um, they're, they're, oh, they're just this close to having a, a space between every single one of the letters <laughs> um, transformation this is my gift 
This is also the plot of Master of Disguise, starring Dana Carvey. <laughs> Am I not turtly enough for the turtle? <laughs> I've never seen that movie. I just know that line. Um, <laughs> Did you know that that scene was filmed as the second plane was hitting the second Twin Tower? <laughs> I did know that. <laughs> they had a moment of silence on set for it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, the the blonde tourist was Malach who had thrown off his jacket and sling to reveal the slim blue blazer underneath and then put on a little wig because <laughs> he's so good at disguises. And then we got a very weird paragraph. <laughs> Can I read it? Can I read it? Oh yeah, go for it. As Malach's mortal legs... <laughs> carried him toward his waiting limousine he arched his back standing to his full six foot three height and throwing back his shoulders he inhaled deeply letting the air fill his lungs he could feel the wings of the tattooed phoenix on his chest opening wide his mortal legs it's a lot Um, i don't know i think maybe it's actually a oblique reference to ozymandias is it? Two vast and trunkless legs of stone in the desert, right? Percy Bysshe Shelley. I, I, I know what you're saying, Forrest. I just don't the, know the, if... The, 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 I'm just trying to prove how smart I am. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, because Ozymandias thought that his legs and form would be immortal, but they weren't, whereas Moloch's legs are mortal, but he's gunning for immortality. Something like that. Wow, you're ascribing a lot of a lot of uh, depth to Dan Brown right now. You know, if do you think that someone who wasn't a real intellectual would be working at this very moment on a children's book with an accompanying piece of classical music? Because oh, so I don't. Does he have children? I don't think so. It's for the best. Oh, a hundred percent. His money's going to go to a worthy cause, like probably Harvard. <laughs> Um, chapter 13 oh we get some timeline he says tonight my transformation will be complete so we know that like we're on a like eight hour clock I guess (laughs) yeah everything's gonna happen pretty quickly here except it's actually gonna seem like it takes forever yeah chapter 13 the capital police in chapter 13 are busy like I think probably abusing their power sounds like it Uh, shock so, uh, you know, everyone's looking at his hand and the cops trying to get it under control. A bright light flashed, a tourist taking a photo of the hand and um, several guards immediately detained the man, taking his camera and escorting him off. Like, you can't do that, right? I mean, like, obviously can and do, but like, this isn't like a national security issue. It's just like a hand in the middle of the Capitol Rotunda. This man's a journalist. This man is Jake Gyllenhaal, a nightcrawler. <laughs> I think I think this counts as a national security issue. I mean, I think you could ease... I mean, I, I don't think it does, but I think the police think it does. And so, give me that camera. I guess. Sounds fishy to me. Uh, there's, a, there's a bloody hand in the middle of the rotunda. What if there's a bomb in it? You know? I guess. But, like, does some guy taking a picture of that bomb necessitate taking his camera away? I don't know. Maybe they don't want photos so. of the incident. Who's to say? Sounds like, sounds like, I don't know, 
doesn't sound like a nation with a with a functioning First Amendment to me. <laughs> it's more of a Fourth um, Amendment issue, I think. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. <laughs> Never tell me about the Constitution. <laughs> um, so the hand is chilling. Just for the record. <laughs> is chilling. Um, Langdon's close enough now to see that their dried blood had run down from the wrist and coagulated onto the wooden base. And, um, you know, forensic pathologist Robert Langdon is like, ah, postmortem wounds don't bleed. I love Dexter. Which means that Peter's alive. <laughs> um, he's nauseous again. He's going to throw up in like any second. He's going to hurl. And like, as the police are trying to cordon this area off and like beating up people with cameras, Langdon just keeps on getting closer to the hand and he sees the <laughs> tattoos of a crown and a star and he's, as he crouches down, eyeing the tips of Peter's thumb and index finger, he's like, tattoos, a crown and a star. This can't be, this is the, this is the hand of mysteries. Um, and he has time to think of this whole fucking stupid paragraph before a guard's like, uh, sir, please step back. <laughs> Three, two, one, record. You see, if I didn't say it on my end, then I wouldn't have it when I go to Well, edit. you could have just clicked when I said, like, said, like, but it's fine. It's we got there. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know that would have worked too. But this way is more fun for me. Um, My um, Kindle has gone into sleep mode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're back in business. It's okay. all happening. <laughs> it's the hand of mysteries. The hand of mysteries is on the floor. It's got tattoos. It's got a thumb and a crown. Um, crown. Uh huh. And the guard tells Lang to step back and he's like, there are other tattoos. There are other tattoos in the hand. The hand represents an invitation. And as, as far as I can tell, I can't find any reference to the hand of mysteries before like 17, maybe 1600, okay. maybe later. Uh -huh. um, and also he's going to describe it more later on. But, like, as far as I can tell, it's less of an invitation to some kind of arcane initiation. Like, it's a little bit that. Okay. But I think it's mostly just literally a mnemonic device for alchemical salts. Oh, that's exciting. That's more fun, I think. There's a, good, there's a good webpage that describes it, but, like, there's a centerpiece of this that is not described by Dan Brown's version of the Hand of Mysteries. And so it's all very frustrating. Uh, can I ask you something? Have you found mm -hmm. that your education as an archivist has made you, has, has given you skills to better uh, fact check these novels? Uh, no. Okay. All right. Well, Langdon feels some powerful arms pulling him up and leading him away from the hand. So we're, we're, we're uh, back, baby. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. <laughs> 2020. Um, in chapter 14, we learn maybe my single favorite fact about Malach. Yeah. Um, which is that this motherfucker drives a stretch limousine. Malach felt the feeling of power he got from driving this massive car all alone. He's got five other cars, but he doesn't use them. This one guarantees privacy because none of the cops in D.C. are going to pull over a limo because, like, what if they pull over Vladimir Putin or some shit and he, like, poisons them with cobalt thorium G? He calls um, them embassies on wheels. 
which like when I took a stretch Hummer limo to the Rocky Horror Picture Show on my 18th birthday, <laughs> that was an embassy, baby. When I got to get in the limo, Lena is single-handedly responsible for climate change <laughs> as well as the prosecution of U.S. worker limos. When I sold more magazines than anyone else in my class, when I got to go in a limo to In and Out, that was an embassy. <laughs> <laughs> And I got to go in the limo with Chase, who was my crush at the time. It did not pan out. Chase is an incredible high school crush. (laughs) There were two Chases in my... That's like archetypal. I was in middle school. There were two Chases in my middle school. One was ugly and one was beautiful. That sounds about right. Um, So Malach has learned of a secret lab where Catherine Solomon had been performing miracles and it's going to unveil the true nature of all things. And Mala is like, we can't be having that. Um, (laughs) Not on my fucking watch. Um, I have come to obscure the light. This is my role. I guess we'll get, he'll he'll explain a little bit more about what this means later. It's just, you never hear someone wanting to obscure the light. Like even these fucking QAnon people are here to expose the truth, you know? Where we go one, Lena? What? We go all. Where we go one, we go all. There is a guy, um, I took a few weeks of a stats class at community college in San Diego before UCLA rudely rejected me. And then I didn't have to take stats anymore because that was the only program that wanted me to take stats. Mm -hmm. And that class like truly fucking sucked. I've never had a worse lecture in anything ever. (laughs) Um, and like I, I got the material like it was fine but just man this fucking lecture sucked ass and I couldn't deal with it <laughs> and I didn't need the class but there's a guy in that class who um, was always wearing QAnon shirts how many did he have and it, I, I mean I went I went to like two months of that class so at least eight <laughs> there might have been a couple of repeats in there but like he had several uh, I once saw a guy in a QAnon shirt at Costco in Poway that's all I have for you I have to believe your average QAnon guy is not super big on laundry. <laughs> There's a really interesting article about how most like QAnon folks are just like sad and lonely older people who are like normal for the most part, but believe this conspiracy theory. Every fucking like major holiday, there's like the saddest Twitter thread of someone going like taking a picture of just like a dry ham sandwich being like, oh, you know, spent this Thanksgiving alone because my families are all like lib cucks. Uh, you know, post post your Thanksgiving dinners if your family also doesn't want you to have you here because of your uh, belief in the fact of QAnon. And then it's just like a million boomers uh, <laughs> posting pictures of just the most depressing dinners you've ever seen. Oh my God. It's pretty sad. It'll be interesting to see what kinds of conspiracy theories come out of this epidemic. Oh, I mean... Uh, there have been are you familiar with the twitter personality bill mitchell uh does he have a person's face as an avatar he does he's the most he looks like a, he looks like a he looks like a game show host kind of mm, yes i do know who bill mitchell is i followed him briefly for like a week or okay. two before i had to unfollow him because i was like actively losing yeah, my mind yeah your brain was rotting um <laughs> 
and he's 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 been on a couple of coronavirus conspiracies and his replies have been on many many more coronavirus conspiracies well the thing is like um, people on fox news business are straight up being like this is a this is a, a an impeachment conspiracy and i'm like okay sick and then they're like i mean trump's probably gonna by <laughs> bolsonaro last week so apparently i'm sorry, apparently uh, NSA, uh, ignore that. I'm joking. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> Malach explains yeah. that for millennia, mankind had wandered in darkness, and now there was a change coming, as had been prophesied. Um, but this is scary for him and bad. It's bad for the clarity to illuminate the darkness. Exactly. He wants to prevent a new renaissance. But that's um, because it's his role, right? Yeah. Yes. So this and, is awesome. You know, there's a great transition here. Malach is going to make sure darkness remains, and then chapter 15 begins with Catherine Solomon groping in the darkness. I didn't even notice this the first time I read it. Damn, Forrest, you are so smart. I didn't notice it until I turned the page while you were talking. I was like, darkness, dark. Oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> what if Dan Brown's like actually a good author? We're just too dumb to notice it. <laughs> Sorry for saying that Plot out loud. twist. <laughs> um,. Have you heard the Sigrid song plot twist? The what song? Um, she goes to the cube. <laughs> um, the cube is her lab inside pod five. It's got a hydrogen cell power thing going on. She goes in the lab. It's full of um, a bunch of dumb science equipment. It's probably smart science equipment, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> we don't go into um, it. We, he does not tr- treat the science equipment the same way he treats like any other machine. I don't know. I mean, it has has paired electroencephalographs, a femtosecond comb, a magneto-optical trap, and quantum indeterminate electronic noise REG... Oh, excuse me, quantum indeterminate electronic noise REGs, more simply known as random event generators, which I have to assume is what that REG stands for. But he doesn't um, say, so like, for- like, it's the turboencephalograph a Tron 3000 the way he might with like a gun or a car <laughs> Par- oh he doesn't give you a brand name for the parrot electroencephalographs yeah. that is true um, a magneto optical trap was a essential plot point and a really good issue of X-Men can I ask just real quick a quantum indeterminate electronic noise REGs more simply known as random event generators could they not just be called REGs if we're just if we're going to shorten them to R E G. That's what I was saying. Okay. So like, the the so the long version of the name he gives includes you includes the acronym includes for an acronym this. for the short version of the name he gives you. <laughs> my man's an artist. Oh my um, god! This is biz rap all over again. <laughs> might never matter. Catherine's thinking about noetic sciences and how it uses cutting edge equipment, but like it's actually. Um, you know, pretty wild and rooted in ancient ideas. Mm-hmm. And she talks about, starts talking about what it is. And it's, it, it's basically the whole thing where you're like kind of hippie second grade teachers, like telling you how, if you think positive thoughts at plants, they grow better. And like, if you are freezing water in a, in a, in a, in a freezer and you think directed positive thoughts at it, the, crystalline structure in the ice is kind of orderly and good but if you think chaotic bad thoughts the crystalline structure in the ice like is different 
and like maybe science is wider, wilder than we ever thought. <laughs> it's that. That's noetic science is. Yeah, that's what's going on. It, it, he says it in um, so many words. He takes so long to say that. Um, he talks about 9 11. Uh, it's a whole thing. Yeah, and he ties it back to the ancient spiritual belief in a cosmic consciousness. Yes, let's get into it. Um, yes. It's some real Marianne Williamson shit, who I know we talked about a lot last time I recorded this when she was still a, a prominent figure in our lives. <laughs> um, but now it's March of 2020, and aside from... Today she had a tweet about penises, I think. Did she? That got... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand it. Um, was it about, like, toxic masculinity? No, I think it was about coronavirus and something. What? Yeah, I was starting to get, I was, <laughs> Marion Williamson, I was starting to get really depressed, and then I burst out laughing, thinking about how many penises had been prayed over, over the, had been prayed for over the last two days. Next tweet, in parentheses, to those who don't understand the reference, and given how viral it's been, I'd assume there are very few of those, a doctored video of my coronavirus meditation makes it sound like, well, you know, and I don't know, but <laughs> Sure. <laughs> But she's praying over a penis? I guess. I mean, I don't think she is, but like... But, it, but the doctored footage... I don't understand it, but that's what Mary Williamson's up to, and presumably also noetic science. And I'm sorry, I, I need to unpack this just a little bit further. <laughs> <laughs> she's saying that people are seeing this doctored footage and then copying the doctored footage and praying over the penises. That's my assumption. Okay. Thank you. Because you know how when you see a fake video of someone to make fun of them, you then go and do the thing they tell you to do in the fake video? Or, well, my, the, the other option is just playing the video is a prayer. One play equals one prayer. <laughs> that could also be. Okay. It's like a prayer wheel that way. Um, uh, 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 Nomadic Sciences, she keeps on talking about it. She keeps on talking about it. <laughs> So she says, oh. this is the missing link between modern science and ancient mysticism. That's all you need to know. There's like, she mentions like Kabbalah, Kabbalah? Kabbalah, uh, the Zohar, and like, so to reinforce this, we get another flashback to when she is doing her undergraduate degree, I believe at Harvard, um, and Yale. she's on break. And she goes back and talks to her brother, Peter. Um, and, oh, sorry. She goes to Yale. Yale. The Solomons are a Yale family. Yes. Um, and so her brother's like, ah, what are the Eli's reading these days in theoretical physics? And it's like, motherfucker, they aren't. They're going to parties. <laughs> um, and she gives him her reading list that Eli's? she's not read. Uh, it's, it's, it's what Yale people call themselves. Oh, gross. I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hate that. Uh, and he's like, oh, are you reading, you know, you're reading Einstein, Bohr, Hawking, but are you reading anything older than that? And she's like, you mean Newton? And she's like, uh, and he's like, older, older than that. And she's like, that's 
preposterous. What are you talking about? Pythagoras, uh, Hermes Trismegistus. <laughs> Hermes Trismegistus. <laughs> He's <laughs> quoted... I only know the, the name Hermes Trismegistus because Pharrell says it in Where They From by Missy Elliott featuring <laughs> Pharrell. Hermes Trismegistus. And I was like, that can't be right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it should be Hermes. <laughs> um, but... Hermes Trismegistus is very funny. Um, and he's like, you know, even more than that, uh, the, the, the scientific wisdom of the ancients was staggering. Um, and she's like, yeah, you know, Egyptians had levers and pulleys and shit, yeah. but like, you know, no one was doing like entanglement theory. And he's like, you idiot. Of course, um, the, 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 the nature of, of things being entangled is, is key to ancient philosophy. And like, that's not, I think directly what quantum entanglement is, <laughs> uh, but whatever. And then he's like, it's like man's oldest spiritual quest was to perceive his own entanglement, to sense his own interconnection with all things. He has always wanted to become one with the universe to achieve the state of at one. We talked about this. To this day, Jews and Christians still strive for atonement. And you know what the worst fucking part of this is? <laughs> He's right. That is the correct etymology for atonement. <laughs> I was just going to say that He's explaining quantum entanglement the same way that, like, if you have an aunt who sells essential oils, like, explains resonance and vibrations, like. And then Catherine correctly is like, okay, you're talking, like, generalities here, which obviously, um, just because things are entangled doesn't mean it's entanglement theory. And so then he's like, well, then you be specific. She's like, well, what about polarity the positive negative balance of the subatomic oh realm my God. and like oh, nice specific catherine and then peter solomon's like ah she's just modern polarity is nothing but the dual softballs. world described by krishna here in the bhagavad gita or a dozen other books like it's 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 the force for example he's talking about like manichaean duality as being an idea of polarity which i don't know what quantum physics polarity is i assume it's like uh, Maddie antimatter shit. You know what we right? need on this podcast? I don't know this. We need a third person who knows like the nitty gritty about science. That would be helpful. <laughs> um, um, good idea. Thanks. But anyways, I don't think it's the same thing as uh, manichaeism. And Catherine is still skeptical, rightly, and she's like, "Okay, what about like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle?" Which I guess, and he's like, ah, uh, I mean, Heisenberg and Schrodinger studied uh, the Upanishads, uh, which we all know because um, famously Robert Oppenheimer, upon um, the atomic bomb shit, did the did the quotation from, uh, I think the Bhagavad Gita. No, I don't know from one of them fucking books yeah. where he's like, I've become death, the destroyer of mm -hmm. worlds, and it's like badass, and like you know, you zoom in to. Um, uh, Sean Connery's mouth as he's saying it aboard the Red October, and he's talking in Russian. And you zoom back out, and he's talking in English now. <laughs> um, uh, just <laughs> good. I still haven't seen that movie. <laughs> yeah, no. Over, 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 like over, over. Uh, on New Year's Day, Lena came over and watched Point Break, yeah. and so now I can't reference Point Break anymore. I can only reference The Hunt for October, the other good movie that Lena hasn't seen. 
Um, just real quick, in defense of Catherine, she's a sophomore <laughs> in college. She doesn't know anything. A wise fool. <laughs> uh, We're talking about super string theory now. I don't know. And like nothing could be nothing could be clearer about the way Peter Sullivan's conducting himself in this conversation than that he is a twenty-seven-year-old dude. Um, How old are you, Forrest? Twenty-nine. <laughs> I know. I'm fucking ancient. <laughs> Um, and I mean, also I am here, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to explain scientific facts on a podcast about Dan Brown books. <laughs> so, uh, you know, glass houses. I realized recently that, um, my mom had me at this age, like as at the huh. time that I'm drinking a three euro cab sov talking about Dan Brown, <laughs> my mom had a whole baby. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know. It's a good capsov, though. <laughs> I was, I was also the same, like along the same lines. I think just this morning, where I was like, you know, thinking of how old my parents are and like how old they are in relation to my grandma, and then like, hello. I, th- oh, I think I think my parents. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was, I was, I was paused in in deep contemplation and thought. Mm. Um, but yeah, basically I'm just an immature moron, but I'm almost 30, which is like, you're supposed to be like an actual adult at age 30. You're, you're so close. And I don't think I am that. You're so close. How much longer do you have in your degree? I'm not going to be, I mean a year. I'll be 30 when I graduate. Amazing. And then you'll have a career. We'll see. I've been applying for jobs lately and it's not been going so good because of the coronavirus. Um. <laughs> And now, like, no one's hiring. <laughs> Fair. I don't know what's happening with my summer job yet. Will I still have one? Will I work remotely? We don't know. Everything is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> and Catherine, and then they start talking about super string theory, which the year that this book is published is 2009. String theory hasn't yet been, like, all but conclusively debunked. <laughs> Brian Greene is still making oodles of money fucking talking about it and writing about it. I read both those books in middle school and felt so fucking smart. <laughs> um, and um, he's like, well, he, you know, of course the super string theory is not in the Bhagavad Gita. For that, you've got to come here. <laughs> Slams a book on the table. And Catherine flips through it and she's like, oh, fuck. He's talking about 10-dimensional universes of resonating strings. It's the Zohar. It even describes how six of the dimensions are entangled and act as one. It's the Zohar. And complete I read Zohar. the Zohar's Wikipedia page today. <laughs> Untrue. I, I skimmed parts of the Zohar's Wikipedia page today <laughs> and then clicked over to the Sefir Rotes, uh Wikipedia page and skimmed that too. Because the Sefir Rotes are the um, 10 dimensions that we're talking about here i think Mm -hmm. and like they're they're like this kind of like gnostic related concept of kind of 10 divine emanations that uh are present in the physical world and it's like if you want to get real fucking weird with it you can probably maybe think of them as dimensions i don't know where he's getting this thing about six of them working and being um, entangled and acting as one that one i don't know where it's coming from (laughs) But um, this whole thing is pretty fucking dicey. Uh, but it sets Catherine's life on a new trajectory. 
Um, and then we flash back to right now. And if Peter knows all this. Why hasn't he already gone into noetic sciences? Uh, he's too busy doing like philanthropy or something. I don't know. It's not very clear. Uh, because then there wouldn't be a sexy lady for Robert Langdon to try to hook up with throughout this book. And she's an older woman, correct? Correct. Okay. Just like Blythe Brown. Blythe. Blythe. Not a sexy not name. Not a sexy name. Is this? Oh, my mom's sexing me. What does she want? Oh, yeah, I left the book in San Diego. Well, oof. oof. I hate to see it. <laughs> I have two copies of this book. <laughs> yeah, be- between us now, Lena and I have four copies of Lost Symbol, two physical and two digital. I lost the Lost um, Symbol. <laughs> yeah, so, you know... Even if our extended quotations aren't fair use, um, we've paid you enough money, Dan Brown. <laughs> Don't come after us. <laughs> I'm very poor for now, Dan Brown. And so, yeah, Catherine has like a little uh, flash this time. So she comes back to the present day and then she has a flashback instead of to her sophomore year of college to just earlier today where a voice told her that what your brother believes is hidden in D.C. can be found. Sometimes a legend that endures for centuries is endures for a reason. And she says, no, that can't possibly be allowed to nobody in this fucking lab. <laughs> Wait, uh, I'm sorry. Something fucky has happened with my copy of this book. Hold on. Uh-oh. Yes, she, it can't, oh yes, a legend is, okay. Yes, we're with it now. Chapter 16. Well, you know what? Guile Incorrect. is on the scene. Oh, no? Incorrect. Oh. <laughs> No, it's time. It's time to learn a little something about some men you should be avoiding. Is that what we're doing? Is, that, is this the... Okay, we're doing five at a time now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, no, because we, we need some more chapters after. It's like a halfway marker, except it's just a when I f- remembered it marker because I saw the book on my desk I looked down. Well, great. Let's do it. Um, is it your turn? Yeah. All right. The, the 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 structure of the podcast is getting a little wonky, frankly, gang. Um, don't worry about it. It'll all become clear. It's it's a symbol. I mean, it sounds like the um, people. What the people want to hear is tangents. <laughs> and um, I I hope so because that's what they're fucking getting this time. Around. So you're only getting ten chapters an episode. That's just the way it's gonna be. Maximum. <laughs> Max. Um, okay, men to avoid. The first one: men who think a thesaurus is a dinosaur. How's that one grab you? Um, so I'm not going to directly answer your question, but what I, what I will say is that there was a forest, you know, about sapiosexuals, I, I assume. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm well aware because I am. <laughs> Stop it. I hate you. <laughs> there was a fabulous post about morosexuals and just loving dumb people. Oh, I've just seen Just straight up idiots. And uh, I love that. I like the Joey Tribbiani feel that this person has. But I was really hoping that this, um, rather than what it actually says, would say, men who think a thesaurus is a personality. Um, <laughs> That's, that would make more sense. Cause, like, that would also ma- disqualify and, Dan Brown. It's true. Because like, overuse of a thesaurus is... is very bad and it's how you wind up with writing like dan brown does mortal legs fuck out of here um the next man to avoid uh men who keep a condom in their wallet just in case 
I mean, isn't it better to be safe? What's the alternative? I'm gonna. You'd think so. I, I'm like, hey, do you have a condom? And the guy's like, no. Like, well, then that's that's the end of the encounter, my friend. Like, either go down to the corner store, or it's not gonna happen. I mean, having a condom in the wallet at least shows a, like a sense of responsibility. Like, what what is what does Dan Brown expect? My assumption is that he views it as a symbol of either a kind of immoral promiscuity or as a symbol of um, unwarranted confidence. But like, I, I still think he's probably ultimately wrong on this so one. So my only concern is that condoms have expiration dates, right? That is true. Um, but I so I've heard. To be fair, I don't really know what they're for. I assume it's for if there's a spermicide. Oh, it's to keep people from getting STDs and from getting pregnant. <laughs> Forest. <laughs> I was making a joke. <laughs> so, is it for the spermicide that is often on condoms, or is it for the latex itself? Will it degrade over time? Um, I suspect it's probably for both. Right. Um, uh yeah, I, my my feeling is better safe than sorry. Also, you know there isn't always a twenty four hour CVS nearby, so better to have it on hand. I don't know. Damn. My feeling is twenty twenty. You're the monk. <laughs> um, monk girl spring. Uh, next one. Men who watch Oprah. What's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> what? Is it just because it's, like, effeminate? I think it's homophobic, right? 100% it's homophobic. But, like, I don't think it's, like... Like, there are... I have issues with Oprah that have come to me in old age, you know, based on, like, an understanding of economics. But, <laughs> um... There's nothing inherently wrong with watching the television show, I don't think. Like doesn't mean you inherently no. agree with everything a spouse on the show like i also think it's weird that so like we've talked before about how this book is it's never entirely clear whether dan brown's objective here in having women avoid these men mm. is because he wants them to retain some kind of virginal purity mm. and therefore be like available to fuck dan brown mm-hmm in which case it seems like he'd want them to be hanging around his homophobic version of men who watch Oprah because then like you know they're not gonna be fucking those guys and are free to fuck Dan Brown but maybe those guys are like don't fuck Dan Brown maybe that's the problem it just feels like it's at once you know when we talk about when we talk about state power generally in the law there's a test that you apply to ensure that the measure isn't overly restrictive um or under restrictive what's that test and i feel that's the test i told you just straight up that's the test um you just want to make sure that it's neither of those because otherwise it's it's, i I, I wonder if i had a name yeah uh uh it does but i haven't taken con law in over a year and i don't i don't care to uh revisit it um i see see you lecturing about the constitution earlier in this very episode but now suddenly i haven't taken con law for over a year you just you're just gonna sit there in silence while i look it up (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, let's not do that. <laughs> let's talk about this next man to avoid. No, no, no. No, let me finish my point. Hold on. My point being... He doesn't want men to be overly masculine and confident so, so far as to have a condom in, in the wallet. I'm talking with my hands here. Um, but he also doesn't want them to be effeminate, such that they would watch Oprah. And I don't know what he wants. I don't know what Danielle wants. I don't know what Dan wants. Who shouldn't I avoid? A man should wear a tweed sports jacket, <laughs> a mock turtleneck and a mickey mouse watch baby and a nice pair of chinos, chinos. <laughs> um our next man to avoid are men who collect comic books that seems fairly inoffensive i feel like this is based on this the comic book guy in the simpsons that could be. But, like, the, um, that kind of a man, the comic book guy kind of a man, which you would now classify as a fedora neckbeard, or maybe you would have five, yeah. five years ago, I think now you would say an incel. Um, they're not comic book collectors. Comic book collectors today, at least, are, are men of distinction who appreciate a dying like, art fair, form. This book was written in, like, 95 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like the comic books of the mid nineties are like, I think a kind of height of, uh, like grim, darkified, ultra violent, sexually exploitative, like kind of a height of bad comic book vibes. Is that when there was that artist who would draw men with the, the barrel chest that jutted out three feet forward? I believe this is kind of his height. Do, what's his name? Do you remember? Um, no, but I should know. <laughs> but I, I, I'm thinking of the, the one picture of Captain America that I think you were also thinking of. That's the one. <laughs> Rob Liefeld. Okay. Yeah, but, I mean the nineties like the killing joke or killing joke might have been late eighties, but it's like that kind of that kind of thing. I think it's like the height of Deadpool and cable, maybe. Okay. Um, okay. That kind of like Michael Bay the Michael Bay of comic books. Yeah, that's that's my understanding of nineties comic books. I didn't really read any comic books until like the late aughties. Likewise. Um and now I read them periodically at best. The next man to avoid are men who would quote unquote rather be anywhere. So I think this is people with license to wait for this. Like I'd rather be fishing. I just feel like it. Or I'd rather be uh, uh, flying the Starship Enterprise. They may be a man to avoid simply because this man is sixty-eight years old. Well, oh, the the rather be man yeah. or the author of this no, book. No, the rather be man. Yeah, the rather be man. I think that's true. Maybe I think you know, approaching geriatric here. Um, last one. Uh, this is the most heinous of all. These are people that you absolutely want to hang out with because they're the most fun. Men who work at carnivals. Carnies? Forrest. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get me killed. Uh, carnies are cool, man. Have you hung out with carnies, Forrest? Not a lot, mm. but like I think I think it would be fun to... Like, uh, carnies, Renfair people... Renfair people and... rule. Those are different people. They are. I'm talking about the, the the three groups of people who I think I like 
uh, most kind of romanticized in my day-to-day life as just something like, man, what could it have been like um, our carnies, Renfair people, and uh, rail hoppers? Rail hop. Okay, so Renfair people. So I got to go to one Renfair when I was 12, and it was the best day of my fucking life. I was a hot commodity. I wore a whole outfit with a with a corset belt and I ate a turkey leg and it was <laughs> the classic Renfair food. It was <laughs> because as as is well known, no food typifies uh late medieval Renaissance Europe like the New World bird the turkey. <laughs> I've been chasing after that Renfair high my entire life and it's been how how long? Like thirteen years since it happened. <laughs> Something like that. And and upon meeting David, the man I'm going to marry, about a year in, I found out that he used to fre- frequent um, Bay Area Ren fairs with his best friend, and they were both magicians at the time. And um, Jesus Christ, as an as a, as an attendee or like working the Ren fair. No, uh, they were attendees, is my understanding. Okay, because when I say Renfair people, I'm specifically talking about like the people who work at the Renfair. I understand what you're saying. What I what okay, I what I sure. like to go on to say is that they would go and they would just juggle at the Renfair together. That's so great. <laughs> and I've been begging um, him to be like, "Can we go to a Renfair, please?" And he's always like, those days are behind me. Like, it's the war or some shit. If he does not want to go to a Ren Fair, Lena, next time we're in the same fucking place at whatever Ren Fairs are happening, I would love to fucking go to a Ren Okay, fair. let me ask you something. Because there, there are Ren Fairs in our hometown area. I'm, oh, I'm aware. Yeah. We went to one in middle school. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's uh, also... Me, me, and, me and this guy who at the time I mostly fucking hated... Uh, but is now like a friend of mine <laughs> would go, we, we, we went and we, uh, both brought recorders and had some recorder duets prepared oh, and we so got to go good. on stage and play green sleeves. So good. All I remember, I remember all I wanted was to kiss the blue knight who was about to, who was about to joust, but I was a child, you see, so Lena, didn't work the out. subs, the, 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 um, like sub genre of my romanticizing what could life as a Renfair person have been like is like fantasizing about running away to Burbank and becoming a knight at medieval times. I've never been not Burbank. Anaheim. I've never been to medieval times, and I always Neither wanted have to. I. I wanted to go for my 18th birthday, and nobody took me. So we could maybe do that also. God, absolutely. <laughs> um, um, uh, anyway. Uh, th- there's nothing wrong with carnies, I guess. I mean, they seem like they might be into some, like, substance abuse, so just, like, watch yourself, I guess. But, like, otherwise, I think it's probably fine. Yeah, I mean, I think notoriously carnies are into substance abuse. Yeah. It's, like, a defining carny attribute. That's right. Um, but, like, there's a lot of 90s and 80s stereotypes, I think. Uh, probably even before that. Isn't, like, did you have to watch in Kelsey's class that Something Wicked This Way Comes thing where it's, like, the darkness hides out at the carnival and shit? No. I think it's like an American horror trope. That would have 100% scarred me for life, and I would remember it. Okay. Um, anyways. Did you see the now new Harley Quinn movie? Sorry, did you see the new Harley Quinn movie? What was that? I did. Did you like it? I liked it. I had fun. I had a good time. Yeah. Great. I'm glad we're on the It's always fun page. to see Mary Elizabeth Winstead doing her thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
there was like a guy on Twitter who was uh, several guys on Twitter who were like the problem with this movie is it's not sexualized enough and like Black Canary's tits were out that entire fucking movie. Whole movie. Also, Mary Elizabeth Winstead spit in my mouth. Yeah, no. Um, Extreme Dime is my verdict on this. <laughs> Chapter whatever. And the, like sh- shooting people with a fucking crossbow. Oh, Excuse me. And I liked that she was goodness gracious awkward and visibly anxious. Um, yeah. and she, yeah, uh, Bruce of Prey is a great movie and it had great songs in it by Doja Cat, Megan Thee Stallion and Normani. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, looking forward to, I think in like four days at the height of this social, uh, isolation thing going mm-hmm. on is when we get the VOD release of Cats. Oh my God. <laughs> looking forward to that. I have it pre-ordered on Amazon. On a similar note, but I am going to pre-order it because I have friends here who haven't seen Cats, and I'm going to make them see Cats. Oh but like, um, on a similar note, it, at least to me, there is a musical coming out. It's a jukebox musical using the music of Tom Jones. <gasps> and it's about the literary character Tom Jones from the 18th century or what have you. I get more questions wrong about that guy on fucking Proto Bowl than anyone else. <laughs> story, story of an orphan, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, after whom the singer Tom Jones is named, actually, back in the 60s when the singer Tom Jones was coming up in the working men's clubs, as they were called. Um, his manager called him Tom Jones because there was a movie in 1963 uh, about the huh. you know life of, life of, an, life of an orphan. And Sorry, it, I, it is a foundling. Okay, yes. Um, and uh, it was very popular at the time, so... The, so Tom Jones' manager named him Tom Jones, and now it's come full circle. It's that story set in the swinging 60s in England using uh, Tom Jones' music. And, of course, the musical is called What's New, Pussycat. And, uh, Fuck, that sounds good. I, it's open, it was supposed to open in London this week, but I don't think it did. <laughs> Have I told you my Tom Jones story? I would love to hear it for us. So a couple years ago... Um, my friend Steven, who you know, mm-hmm. and me, along with our friend, our newlywed friends, Cam and Tay, who like did it as a, as a, uh, honeymoon, uh-huh. uh, which like side story. I found out recently the, their like family's stories and like the only way that like, uh, Tay's family has heard of Steven. And I was like, Oh, you were the pair that tagged along on their honeymoon. And we're like, mm, this is not how we thought of it. I remember <laughs> Anyways, when that happened. Like, the, the whole combination of factors wound up that we did a road trip through southern Wales. Um, and Tom Jones is Welsh. Tom Jones is Welsh. Uh, the final night we were in Wales, we were in Pembroke, which is, like, at the very southwestern tip of Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where Henry VII was born. Good to know. And, uh, you know, there's... It was it was the best day of the Wales trip. Um, that afternoon, we'd gone to see this place called St. Goffin's Head, which is this kick-ass fucking monastery slash little shrine. Mm-hmm. It's like hidden in a seaside cliff. It was a cloudy day. The waves were like really high. And it was fucking awesome. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we then go for dinner at this little pub in Pembroke. And when we walk in, there are two other people there. There's a woman at the bar who's the bartender, whose name I forget. And there is the drunkest man in Wales who is every couple minutes going up to the jukebox, putting in a few more uh, pounds. Put another dime the in the jukebox, money baby. Is, yeah. And queuing up like five Tom Jones songs. Hell yeah. <laughs> and like, just like 
getting into it and the bartender's like, Hawk Daffod, you got to play something other than fucking Tom Jones. <laughs> and finally, like, he just, like, refuses to play anything other than fucking Tom Jones. <laughs> and finally, like, he eventually has to go home because he's, like, going to fall over and uh, just, like, Die? pass yeah. out in the bar because he's, again, the drunkest man in Wales. <laughs> And so he gives Tay, the woman of our group, and she's like, oh, you can pick, I've got a couple more credits, so you can pick the song. Um, and, you know, we, the, the, the poor bartender, like, is there anything you, you want to hear? She's like, is anything that's not fucking Tom Jones? <laughs> and so we played Footloose, and she fucking oh, loved good. it. Oh, good. You heard... Just a night of, of sitting and playing darts as Tom Jones blasts in Wales is truly a highlight of my personal You've life. You've heard the, the, the John Mulaney bit about Tom Jones, right? 100 percent okay good then we don't have to cover it is that it for men to avoid um yes okay. chapter 16 <laughs> uh security chief trent anderson is uh pretty mad at himself because someone has found the um sling and jacket that Malach disposed of and he's like oh fuck, i can't believe we missed him they're doing a good job at closing off the rotunda they've got a sign that says this room temporarily closed for cleaning mm, okay this room sure um <laughs> yeah this 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 room that early we established is uh the statue of liberty could fit in standing up <laughs> okay. uh, <laughs> and he's like this one fucking witness just like won't shut the fuck up about saying he's talked to, oh, to to me you missed the point the part where they've collected all cell phones and cameras so that no one sends a picture of this yeah. to cnn of all places the clinton news network <laughs> Um, a tall, dark-haired man in a tweed sport coat. Uh, yeah, he's making a nuisance. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so before he deals with Langdon, Anderson is inspecting the hand here. It looked as if it had belonged to a man of about sixty. Can you tell that? Just by looking at a disembodied hand, I posit that you cannot. I can't tell how old anybody is, Forrest. I can't tell how old anybody is, but like, especially by their fucking hand. <laughs> Although sometimes. Like, you, and, and like, and also like Peter Solomon, incredibly wealthy, presumably like uh, has some fucking skincare shit going on. Mm-hmm. I bet his hand looks like a fucking like 30 year old man's hand. I bet his hands look better than my hands look. And my hands are not fucking bad. Look, I've seen Larry Ellison's hands and those hands, <laughs> they're spotless. They are young hands. Money can buy you excellent hands. Except for in LA for whatever reason. Because I often run into a woman and I'm like, ah, this woman is 40 with Botox. And then I see her hands and I'm like, ah, this woman is 60 with Botox. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Gotta use sunscreen Anyways, on as you know, leads into Trent's next line: mm. a goddamn freak show. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the phone is the CIA, and Anderson's like the CIA. It's uh, our office of security, more, actually. Yeah, no, sorry, more specifically your... the office of security, yeah, okay. which was created by the CIA for one strange purpose. CIA agents hate this one trick <laughs> to spy on the CIA itself. Like a powerful internal affairs office, the OS monitored all CIA employees for illicit behavior, misappropriation of funds, selling of secrets, stealing classified technologies, and use of illegal torture tactics to name a few. Presumably, if they catch you not doing any of those things, <laughs> then you get an official <laughs> reprimand. 
Got him. Got him. Got his ass. Um, uh, okay, someone very ominous is on the line, and that's Sato or Sato. Sato? Yeah. I, th- I think Sato. Sato. Who uh, <laughs> Dan Brown takes remarkable lengths to uh, never refer to with a gender pronoun. Um, yeah, it's not because it's not because Sato is non-binary. It's for a shocking reveal later on. Do you remember? I don't. You know what? Never mind. I take it back. Just forget it. It's not important. So yeah, uh, there is a man in your building to whom I need to speak immediately. The OS director's voice was unmistakable, like gravel grating on a chalkboard. Pardon. There is a man in your building to whom I need to speak immediately. Uh, throat cancer surgery had left Sato with a profoundly unnerving intonation and a repulsive neck scar to match. I want you to find him for me immediately. Did you miss the part where Sato was born inside the fences of Manzanar? <laughs> Fuck, I did miss that. <laughs> the overlord of the Office of Security, Director Inoue uh, Sato, was a legend in the intelligence community. Born inside the fences of a Japanese internment camp in Manzanar, California, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, Sato was a toughened survivor who had never forgotten the horrors of war or the perils of insufficient military intelligence. You know how after you deal with internment, you're like, you know what's wrong? Is there isn't enough security and military in the United States. I'm touching my face again, (laughs) covering with my hands. Um... Yeah, uh, so much like Digital Fortress, Dan Brown continues to have uh, bizarre psychological uh, as, as, uh, uh, ascribe bizarre psychological motivations to Japanese, Japanese people. people in relation to World War II trauma. Yeah, um, also, in a way, and Sato, as far as I can tell, are both surnames. Um, I don't think either one's like an actual first name. Wait, uh, Sato wants to talk to Bobby Langs. As we all do. As we all do. Um, and so they put him on the phone? Yes. Yeah, they put him on the phone, and Lane's like, I've never heard of the, the OS of the CIA. And they're like, well, they've heard of you. Oh. And so then a little comedy of errors is about to happen here. Fun. Where Fun is Sato's um, is basically like, you know, I'm handling a crisis at the moment. I believe you got some information that can help me. And Langdon's like, do you know where Peter Solomon is? Uh, and Sato's just like, I'm asking the questions here. Um, oh, there's a whole thing about how uh, Langdon is more like urbane than they assumed that he would be that you missed here. Despite Langdon's six foot frame and athletic build. Ugh. Uh, Anderson saw none of the cold, hardened edge he expected from a man famous for surviving an explosion at the Vatican in a manhunt in Paris. This guy eluded the French police in loafers? Fuck loafers, am <laughs> the, I right, Forrest? The, the, the famously efficient and cruel French police force, the gendarme. <laughs> this guy looks more like someone Anderson would expect to find Hearthside in some Ivy League library reading Dostoevsky. Anyway. Fuck off. <laughs> I did miss that. Um, so, um, Forrest, you don't have to put this in the show, but I knew a guy in college. I won't tell you what his name is. I mean, I will. His name was... 
but you should take that out because he was half Jordanian, but only when he could use it to be like, I'm not a terrible conservative. Look, I'm J- Jordanian. He was like a young Republican, all that <laughs> shit. So I was in an Arabic class with Mr. <laughs> and uh, he, the first day of class, they were like, what do you do for fun? And like, what kind of shows do you watch on television? And like, at the time I was like, Hell yeah, it's 2012, and I watched Breaking Bad, you know? Like, that's what's going yeah, on in my life. All, yeah. And uh, it got around to him, and he was like, in Arabic, he says, how do you say, and then in English, sitting curled up by the fire with a good book and a tobacco pipe. And I was like, Ugh. sir, <laughs> this is my first interaction with this person. It got much worse after that. Turned out he was part of the rapiest <laughs> frat on campus. Anyway, you oh, can God. include... How do you say, I don't even own a TV? <laughs> I mean, he was in a dorm, so like, no shade he didn't own a TV, but he didn't have a fireplace <laughs> either. <laughs> so, you know, don't put his name in it, but fuck that guy. I fucking hate does, him. Does not have libraries with fireplaces in them, like the Ivy This, this was This was like... It was not a... Ivy League, please hire me to work in a library with a fireplace. <laughs> Harvard, Harvard, I'm in your city. Please hire me. Uh, UC Berkeley's philosophy library has a fireplace. Ooh. Um, anyway. And so, yeah. At the very end of this conversation, Langdon's like, I'm sorry, sir, but I can't read your mind. What do you want from me? Mm. And then, uh oh, she's right behind him. <gasps> What do I want from you? And the mode is in the director's grating voice crackled through Langdon's phone, scraping and hollow like that of a dying man with strep throat. And uh, behind him is is Sato in person. And uh uh-oh, she's a lady. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I was. I'm just trying to. Fi- I was trying to find out where you were, and I was also trying to oh, shake the, the, the image chapter. of uh, Edna Mode from my head. So, <laughs> it, 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 that's kind of what I picture. Sick. Okay. That crossed with um, Harvey Firestein as Tracy's mom in Hairspray. What? What? In the in the Broadway cast recording of the musical Hairspray, uh-huh. Harvey Firestein plays Tracy Herblad's mom, the role that is assayed by John Travolta uh, in right. the motion picture. Okay. Yes. And you know Harvey Firestein's voice is um, raspy, kind of not not how I picture Sato's voice. <laughs> Chapter seventeen. Yeah, director. In, how did you pronounce that? Inoue. I think Inoue. Inoue. Inoue Sato was a fearsome specimen, a bristly tempest of a woman who stood a mere four feet ten inches. She was bone thin. They're really mean to people with vitiligo in here. Yeah. Well, you can't be an antagonist in a Dan Brown book without some kind of condition. <gasps> I forgot. Well, she's not a, an and antagonist per se. She's a like a cold and and competent third party like that other guy. How far ahead have you read? I haven't. Right now well, she's not an antagonist. Forrest <laughs> uh sorry no spoilers um just this 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 constant pro- professional who is in no way uh in no way at all akin to bezu Fash. what in no way in no way 
Correct. <laughs> God, I see. I, I understand what you're doing. I don't approve of it. <laughs> one second. I'm going to pour myself a glass of wine. One moment. What kind of wine is it? Wait, I want to know. I don't know. I need, I need to get the bottle out and see. All right, that. let's see. I'm going to pour another glass of wine too. Let's party. In the process, I hit my head on my dresser. I heard that. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> what we have here is um, a glass of South Australian Viognier. I'm not really a big fan of Australian wine. Generally, I don't like New World wines, but I will make a, an exception for Pinot Grigio. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally go for um, Sauvignon Blancs. Although, if, if if one's available, I will always, always go for a Vino Verde. Ooh. Which are like a, it's like a lightly effervescent Portuguese white wine. Yeah. They're terrific. Vino Verde. Um, Hell yeah. All right. There's one, there's one called Broadbent that has a crab on the bottle. Wait, that's not true. Broadbent has a flower on the bottle. There's one that used to be available here that had a crab on the bottle mm. and it fucking rocked. I'll tell you right now. Best thing about the Netherlands is that the France is right there. And you can get, like, very good French wine for, like, five euros tops. When I was in Switzerland last summer, like, Switzerland produces a ton of wine, and they export, like, none of it. Mm. And so it's like the weird Swiss wines just available in Switzerland. Like, they have a white called, like, Fondant or something. Mm. And, like, it's terrific. And it's, like, cheap as hell in Switzerland, but you just, like, can't get it outside of Switzerland. Have you ever had ice wine? They can't, they're not making ice wine this year. I have. Oh, is it too hot? Yeah, none of the, the grapes never froze. Bummer. Hate to see it. Global warming, gang. Um, <laughs> Inoue Sato has an off-the-chart IQ and chillingly accurate instincts. So, uh, in Digital Fortress, you were in a situation where um, the woman had instincts... You know, the, the saucy, older, nymphomaniac woman. <laughs> Forgot about her. <laughs> and uh, the job of the hut had the... Because we had, like, three... We, we had, like, uh, three different plots going, right? We had, like, job of the hut and Talacious Crumb and, you know, the IT side. And then we had uh, Miss Nympho and her, and her paramour. And then we had the main plot. And when they gathered together... Yeah, I, I kind of... I kind of... Wait... No, Miss Nympho wasn't a Nympho. Like the 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 she had tapes of the guy fucking the kitchen lady. But her 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 defining characteristic was that she would not stop flirting with Golden Hair Man. But she didn't actually fuck him. I thought that she had. She was just like, she was in like the past. I think she was just like performatively horny. <laughs> performatively horny. <laughs> Do I have permission to call her Miss Nympho or no? What would you like me to call her? I mean, yeah, I, I, I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I, in my head, I always pictured her as kind of like a, a Roz from Frasier figure. Are you trying to tell me that Roz from Frasier is not a nymphomaniac? I'm not. Um, Thank you. So, Miss Nympho has, I just had want to the think about Roz from Frasier. <laughs> you what? You just want to th- I just want to think about same. Roz Remember from Remember when Frasier? she dressed as O from the story of O for Halloween? I do not think I've seen that episode yet, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> so, 
such a good episode. <laughs> Perry Gilpin, call me. <laughs> There's a shirt that I saw on T on uh, what's the one? It's not Redbubble. It's T something. T Public, and it just is uh, Kelsey Grammer going, "I am wounded," but then it has like <laughs> you know the, like the vaporwave uh, aesthetic around it. Anyway, um, my point being. Miss Nympho had the instincts, and Jabba the Hutt had uh, the intellect, but here we see them combined into one tiny Japanese woman. Exactly. So it makes her formidable. And she's taken a full month off of work in the past for some kind of horrible cancer. Because mm-hmm. she's tough. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and this whole chapter is kind of annoying. Um, cause she and Langdon are kind of working at cross purposes where she clearly has some kind of agenda, but Langdon's really trying to get Peter Solomon, um, found. Mm-hmm. And so we come back to the hand of mystery. The hand is tattooed. Um, it has a, uh, thumb has a crown, index finger has a star. Mm-hmm. And he knows the other fingertips are going to have some remaining symbols, a sun, a lantern, and a key. And uh, she's like, what's this doing the Capitol? What's going on here? And again, the actual hand of mysteries on the palm, there's a fish tattooed. And the fish tattoo represents, or it's not tattooed, it's like a fish in the palm. It's not normally a tattoo, the hand of mysteries. And the fish represents uh, mercury, the alchemical uh, kind of the big it's a big deal in alchemy right so the other the other the other five symbols are like various alchemical salts so like one saltpeter and one's like some other shit but like the fish the mercury is what brings it all together and makes it all work in an alchemical way but we just leave that out here because um dan brown hasn't found the right websites that i found so does the fish represent mercury generally in any context I'm not sure about any context, but in the context of the Hand of Mysteries, it does. Because, I mean, often a fish represents Jesus. Right. But, like, there is no fish on this hand. But the Hand of Mysteries is supposed to have a fish on the palm. Oh, okay. Sorry. I misunderstood what you were saying. That's on me. And the wine. I I probably also wasn't explaining terrifically well. Um, And so, yeah, Sato's trying to figure out whatever's going on. And Langdon's trying to get her to focus her resources on finding Peter Solomon Mm -hmm. and they're at kind of an impasse when we come to chapter 18 and we're back with Catherine Solomon and she's arrived in her lab which I thought she'd done like the last like two chapters before when we last checked on her um I thought she'd gone to her lab like twice but no no now she's finally in the fucking in the first chapter she just ventured into the darkness and then in the second chapter, she went through the darkness. Opened the door. And opened the because door. Because at the end of the first chapter, she enters her fucking... P- oh, the pin is to, into pod five. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but, like, I get it. And now, she's putting on her white lab coat and doing her rounds, as her brother called them. <laughs> yeah. So she goes and checks the hydrogen fuel cell and goes check the data storage room where there's no... There, there are backups, but all the backups are still inside the cube lest somebody should find out about her research. It's top secret. So... It's not great infosec. No, we had a, we had a, we had a lecture two weeks ago about uh, information security and 
uh, a lot of it boiled down to back up your data but somewhere in a else. place that's not yeah. the physical same place as your uh, main data. I'm sure this will come up later. No, I mean, to be fair, like he does mention here that the best practice is to physically separate it, but because of the secret nature of this data, they've kept it all in the same cube. Let me ask you something. How rich are the Solomons? My understanding is like impossibly rich. So could they not purchase a continent, for example, or launch a satellite into space or do any number of things to keep her, her backups safe? You would think so. You would think they could just bury it underground on the private island they surely own, but they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They put it inside the fucking box. Exactly. Um, and you know how this whole time it's been driven into our heads time and time and time again that the only two people who know about this box are Catherine and Peter Solomon? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <gasps> well, so inside there is a there is a light on. She's like, oh, this can only be my brother Peter Solomon. The only thing that makes sense. But no, it's just her employee who also works there. Plump <laughs> We've woman. never heard about up at this point. The third person who knows about this who actually fucking works there. A plump woman seated at the control room's terminal. Named Trish Dunn. She's a 26-year-old redhead and a genius data modeler. I'm in love with Trish. Reader? Hubba hubba. <laughs> um, well, in the past, we haven't liked plump women, so we'll see how this goes. Trish is mostly likable, I think, aside from... Um, Inventing... Not having any morals. <laughs> yeah. I was going to um, say... Um, oh, no, I forgot the name of the evil corporation. Help. The one that's named after Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, that's Palantir. Yeah. She invented Palantir. Anyway. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, Trish uh, doesn't know what Catherine wants, but she's been in the office or the lab uh, analyzing some kind of data. She's a data analyst and meta systems analyst. Mm. And basically, Catherine wants Trish to run a really high-concept Google search. With Boolean terms? She's heard a legend. What? With Boolean terms? With Boolean terms, and also with some custom OCR (laughs) programs. So um, the idea here is... You know, she's, she's given Trish a list of search terms to look up and then says, I want to know if anyone's written about this in any language at any point anywhere in history. Um, and Trish is like, weird, but like certainly feasible, which I beg to differ. But so it says 10 years ago, the task would have been impossible. Today, with the internet, the World Wide Web, and the ongoing digitization of the great libraries and museums in the world, Catherine's goal could be achieved by using a relatively simple search engine equipped with an army of translation modules and some well-chosen keywords. And there just simply isn't easy access to much of that digitized information. Like Google had a whole thing going on where they're like working with a bunch of libraries to digitize their collections. Mm-hmm. And like they did that and so like, but a lot of times, you know, you Google search on Google books and you just get like a mostly censored page. It's like, this is, this is copyrighted motherfucker. You can't see it. Yeah. There's um, a whole very or, famous property law lawsuit about that exact situation. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and like there may have been this point around 2009 where like things were kind of in the seesaw between just everything is online and available mm-hmm. and everything's not. But like also right now, um, so she's talking about a lot of museums are digitizing their stuff. And I'm taking a class this semester where we're doing digital stewardship and we're looking at a lot of museums kind of websites and things like this. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the searchability is nil and the interoperability with like search engines and anything outside of like that one museum system for the most part is dog shit. Mm-hmm. So I have some questions about how Trisha's little spider here is working, but whatever. Um, There's a lot of searching online in Dan Brown books. There's so much of it. <laughs> it happens all the time. It happened in Digital Fortress, right? Um, Probably. Yeah, there was, well, it was the whole thing where they were in the anarchist cookbook and whatnot. Do you remember this? <laughs> I do remember this. <laughs> and then, I don't know what book it was, but it was like, they were at, oh, I think it was, um... You got a 50-50 chance. <laughs> da Vinci Code. <laughs> where they go to the library uh, in Paris. Yeah, it was Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Because they're in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then That's true. they're all like, everyone's drinking it, tea and whatnot, and they're trying to do a spider crawl search. Yeah, and they're looking for uh, like knight and pope and something that brings up Alexander Pope, and they're like, oh, a knight, a pope, uh, and turn. Yes, 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 yes. So um, uh, my point being that Dan Brown has like a huge boner for Google searches. I don't know why. I don't know how this happened. I think it's because yeah. how, it's how but, he does all his research, obviously, but... So in this one, he's added in many of the lab's research books contain passages in ancient languages. So Trish was often asked to write specialized optical character recognition translation modules to generate English text from obscure languages. She had to be the only metasystems specialist on earth who had built OCR translation modules in old Frisian, make and Akkadian. And <laughs> there is simply no way <laughs> there is simply no fucking way this is why that trish in like an off afternoon has produced an ocr program that is going to take a acadian tablet machine read the characters on it and then produce an english language translation there is no fucking way that you can convince me this happened like we have a pretty strong understanding of acadian grammar and vocabulary but like by no means a fully certain one. And the idea that Trish, who is not a linguist and not consulting with any linguists in this process, <laughs> as far as we know, can simply just whip up. Uh, and like she's 26. She claims to have built OCR translation modules for three languages here. She can't have been working here for longer than, can't have been any longer than three years because that's how long this program has been in place for mm-hmm. and if she is doing other jobs as well as producing these three ocr translation modules um there's no fucking way she's done that in three years i'm sorry i don't believe it it didn't happen well have you considered that she's just the best i'm you, you can be the best <laughs> in, like but you still can't do something that is actually impossible <laughs> also as i re- trying to remember what I looked this up last time we recorded this episode. That make language, I think is one. Yeah. Okay. The, I think I was referring to this Yemayak language, also known as Yemayak and make, is a Koreanic language of Manchuria and Eastern Korea, mm. north of Silla, spoken in the last few centuries BC. It is possibly ancestral to both 
Kogi, Kogoryoic, and Han languages. And I don't believe that this is a written or literary language. Hmm. Um, it might have been, but like the Wikipedia page is like a paragraph long. I just don't think that this is like a written language that anyone has any kind of command over that you can make an OCR program for to translate the writings that don't exist in it into English. Old Frisian, maybe. <laughs> I can maybe buy that because Frisian is a language that is actually already grammatically very close to English. It is, I believe English's closest relative. Well, I simply don't know enough about this to be able to, to chime in or refute here, but... Color me skeptical on Trish Dunn. <laughs> Anyways, she's, she's composed this spider with these surge terms, and Trish is like... A delegator, actually. Forest. Forest. Was that? She, write, she writes a delegator. <laughs> she does. Not a spider. Come on, uh, no. No, but a delegator is like a kind of spider, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, let's see. She even says, a few minutes to write the spider and launch it. After that, maybe 15 for the spider to exhaust itself. And then she says, I'll write a special kind of spider called a delegator. Mm, okay, fair, fair, fair. Which, like... Doesn't sound entirely unlike malware. It's a program that orders other people's search engines to do our work. It's like a meta search engine. So, like, she's already, instead of like building her own index of search terms or something, she's just like looking up on other search engines' indexes and then doing something. I guess. I don't understand it. I don't know how computers work. <laughs> the point is, now we're in a flashback, which is the most important thing. <laughs> it's true. We've been building up to this for a long time. We're talking about how Trish and Catherine met, which is potentially the most beautiful love love story ever told. So I think that's correct. Trish is chilling, you know. Back in the day, she's, she's working an analyst at, in one of the high tech industry's many cubicle farms. That's right. And then she did some freelance programming on the side, talking about meta systems. You know, which if you've remembered, mm -hmm. she's writing a meta system now as a delegator, as a spider. So it's all coming together. Um, <laughs> so a woman calls her and uh, is asking for Trishta. And she says, yes, who's calling, please? And she says, my name is Catherine Solomon. And um, she almost faints because the sexual energy is just that palpable off the bat. Um <laughs> Catherine Solomon, I just read your book, Noetic Science, Modern Gateway to Ancient Wisdom, and I wrote about it on my blog. Yes, I know. That's why I'm calling. Of course it is, Trish realized, <laughs> feeling dumb. Even brilliant scientists Google themselves. Your blog intrigues me. I wasn't aware Metasystems modeling had come so far. So this goes on for some time. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to continue the dramatic reading, but I probably could cut it off. Um, um, so she's Trisha's fangirling because uh, the woman of her dreams has just slid into her DMs, so to speak. Yeah. And, and um, like she makes a little faux pas where she's like, I think Metasystems can turn noetics into real science. And Catherine's like, kind of plays with her as like real science as opposed to, and then she's like, Oh my fucking God, did I ruin this? Uh, what, 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 what I mean? And then Catherine's like, just kidding. I'm just fucking with you. She laughed. What I, only what I, what I could only imagine as a musical, and but deep laugh. 
um, a very sapphic laugh. Podcast getting dangerously horny again. <laughs> um, sorry, hold on. I've lost my sticky note. One, just a moment. Aren't you in a Kindle? No, no, the sticky note is for the camera, so you can't look at me for it. Oh. <laughs> so Catherine says, "I'm interested in your meta systems work." <laughs> Um, so Catherine essentially hires her to come work for her in her cube in the middle of DC, although she lives in San Francisco at the time. Oh, isn't it something like, oh no, no, we haven't gotten to Trisha's house yet, right? That's right. Yeah. Catherine Solomon wants to pick my brain. It felt like Maria Sharpova had called for tennis tips. I just like that line. (laughs) Thank you. The next day, a white (laughs) Volvo classic lesbian car pulled into Trish's driveway and an attractive willowy woman in blue jeans got out Trish immediately felt two feet tall great she groaned smart rich and thin and I'm supposed to believe God is good but Catherine's unassuming air set Trish Trish instantly at ease that was a whole (laughs) was a whole weird thing going on there God is bad because Catherine is thin (laughs) I put it to you that Catherine Solomon would drive a Subaru. No, and I'll tell you why. As we'll learn later, Catherine is bisexual. Uh, is, is Subaru exclusively just gay? That's right. Okay, this makes sense. <sighs> Moving forward. <laughs> I've misread the coded sexual limitations of cars. <laughs> I am talking about the movie here. <laughs> so we learned that uh, Trisha wrote, wrote some code that allowed her to uh, figure out the emotional state of the nation post 9-11. <laughs> yep. Basically through the kind of word clouds that you used to post to your Facebook wall in like 2011. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Catherine says, fascinating. <laughs> oh, God. And like the NSA bought her software, didn't they? That's right. They sure did. Yeah. So a meta system is is this kind of thing, right? Where you're looking at a population of individuals and or systems and then treating them as though they are a single system or entity composed of this larger collection of smaller systems or entities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like a mm-hmm. flock of birds or school of fish okay. moving as one. We call it convergence or entanglement, which the ancients knew about, but they didn't. But they died of. But, but. God, I fucking hate these people. What page are we on, Forrest? Uh, 74. <laughs> didn't we start this on page 32? <laughs> we couldn't finish the book at this point if we were just reading it. <laughs> Catherine's gray eyes focused in on her now. They're just, they're just like, they're, all, they're sitting on the porch in her house in San Francisco, approximately two and a half feet from each other, leaning ever closer as they discuss noetic sciences um, and discussing her like entirely morally bankrupt software that she's produced. And Catherine's, I mean, it's like the best case scenario for Trish because like, Catherine, like she gets to go work for Catherine and do like a scientific research rather than like getting hired by the military 
to like learn when Afghanistan is hopeless enough to invade, you know? Well, I mean, like, I think the government already bought the software. I think it already bought her mood sensing software because <laughs> when Catherine's like, that sounds powerful. Trish is like the government thought, thought so motioning to her big house. Um, and then Catherine's like, Gross. what about the ethical dilemma posed by your work? And Trish is like, you know, That's uh, none of my business. Uh, my software is no different than, say, a flight simulator program. Some users will practice flying first aid missions into underdeveloped countries. Some users will practice flying passengers into skyscrapers. <laughs> Knowledge is a tool, and like all tools, its impact is in the hand of the user. You know, this used to be an argument that I used to entertain. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, on its face, not a bad argument. Right. But at but, the point where you're selling your tool to like the NSA, who is uh, not going to be using it to uh, fly first right. aid missions into underdeveloped countries unless those first aid missions are actually full of like right wing paramilitary fighters. Well, right. My concern is that not, it's not that like it is a tool that exists, but that like she sold it to the NSA. Yeah. Right. Like there was agency present in that action. It's like. When Facebook is like, we are simply a platform, and it's like, okay, granted, but like, you choose <laughs> which content you consider hate speech, and now there's an element of agency, and now you can't just say you're a platform. So like, I, I, you can produce a tool, but you have agency over the use of the tool, no? That's what she said. I was going to say, so we're not sold, but Catherine Solomon is. She's impressed. Yes. Yes. And she's like, okay, so check it out. Meta systems eventually, like you could say, like calculate the weight of an entire sandy beach by measuring the weight of one grain of sand at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's because it has mass. Mm -hmm. What if I told mm -hmm. you that thought has a mass? And like, if you, gathered enough thoughts together they could have a measurable mass that could influence the world would that sound like woo woo shit to you or would that be something you want to work for me and work on what if I told you <laughs> <laughs> and Trish is like yes ma'am I, I, I would love to work on uh, thought sand science <laughs> Sand, you say yes, please. Anywhere, I would follow you to the ends of the earth. <laughs> um, okay, she closes the deal by winking at her, so you know what's going on. Yeah, I posit to you that we get through chapter 20 because <laughs> we've been recording for two and a half hours. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Wait, isn't no, it like I, two o'clock over there? It is 1 30 a.m. Oh my god, do you need to sleep? No, not really. Okay, let's get through chapter 20. <laughs> Okay. Um, Inoue Sato stood with her arms folded, her eyes locked skeptically on Langdon as she processed what he had just told her. What had what had, what had he told her, Forrest? Oh God. Okay, so <laughs> so they go back and forth about the phone call Langdon had with Malach, where he's like, "I want you to unlock this portal," and Sato's like. Uh, he wants you to unlock a portal that Peter's pointing the way towards. Um, 
And Sato says her top priority at the moment is to cooperate with this man. She has information suggesting Langdon is the only one who can give what he wants. And now that you've spoiled it, Forrest, like this sucks. <laughs> this I hate this chapter. Um, I'm regretting that I said we should talk about it, but we got to get through it. Um, okay, so. Okay, okay. Um, Langdon's like, this guy's clearly a lunatic. There's no, like, fucking portal. Uh, and Sato's like, I don't know. I think he's dangerously sane. He's pulled out this entire fucking plot. Would an would a, would a, would a insane, per- in, insane person be able to pull off this kind of <laughs> intricate plan? And Langdon's mm. like, I don't know. Um, why would Peter... And, and he's like, you know, Peter Solomon told him that I'm the only who can lock this portal. And Sato's like, why would Solomon say if it weren't true? And then Langdon's like... like well, I mean, he was like tortured or frightened and Sato's like, yes, it's called in- interrogational torture and it's quite effective because she is a CIA agent. <laughs> this is like when people like, would Trump become president if he was stupid? And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it brings you back to, um, back in back in 2012 when i tried to convince myself that zero dark 30 actually said that torture didn't work um because if you can tort it <laughs> enough you can you can tell yourself it doesn't but you're just like no i just want jessica chastain to have good things in her life um <laughs> and Catherine bigelow director of point break um, it all <laughs> comes back to point break I haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty. I've heard it's very stressful I, to watch. It's stressful to watch, and like it is just um, with the very lightest veneer that isn't really even there, just straight up CIA propaganda. So, <laughs> does that one have Hawkeye in it? Uh, it's got several Hawkeyes in it. No, no. <laughs> I think Chris Pratt's a Navy SEAL, and I like met, a different Hawkeye is like another CIA Jeremy agent. Jeremy Renner. Hawkeye, Hawkeye, oh, Hawkeye. <laughs> no, that's that's the Hurt Locker. Also, Catherine Bigelow. Also, propaganda for U.S. actions in the Middle East. Um, <laughs> but different movie. <laughs> that has Hawkeye and the Falcon in it. Oh, I like him. He's really good. I He's think. A, I think. Yeah, go ahead. I think both of them are really good in that movie. That movie is like it doesn't hold up as a piece of art, but their performances are both quite good. I'm sorry, is the Falcon different than War Machine? Yes, right? Yeah, they are. Uh, the Falcon is Anthony Mackie. He's like Captain America's sidekick. Yeah, and War yeah. Machine is Tony Stark's sidekick, and he is Don Cheadle, except in the first Don movie Cheadle. where he is somebody... Uh, Terrence Howard? Can that be right? He like could got, be right. I think I'm right. Let me make sure here. On IMDb... Because he was in the first Iron Man, but then he got cut out of the rest of them, and they replaced. Yes, I am right. Um, yeah, so he played him in the first Iron Man, and then he got replaced by Don Cheadle, who played him in the subsequent Iron Mans and Avengers. But the same character, not the Falcon and War Machine, but the Don Cheadle and Terrence Howard character. So the reason why I was confused is that I was talking to David, and David was telling me about the new season of Altered Carbon. And he was like, War Machine is in it. And I was like, Don Cheadle is in it? <laughs> that man is not young. Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, War Machine is in it. He's like, buff. And like, he's like a killing machine. And I'm like, 
I think you mean Anthony Mackie, the Falcon. And he was like, no, I'm pretty sure it's Warhammer. So that's how we got in the situation. Okay. Is Anthony Mackie in the new... Yes, Anthony okay. Mackie is in the new Altered Carbon. That guy is hot. I, so, it's true. He is hot. I've never watched Altered Carbon, but the practice is that David will watch slightly stressful television shows and then tell me about them. I've so, tried. I've tried getting to Altered Carbon a couple of times. I've never quite like made the leap past like episode one. Mm, fair. It seems hard to watch. I just like I I got confused and bored mostly. That's why I like The Witcher, a show <laughs> where like when you're confused and bored, you're like, oh, everyone's still like. I love The Witcher. <laughs> I, I I showed it to Stephen when he was in Boston, and it's like you see, even though you never know what's happening because like you're dumb and drunk, um, it's still <laughs> fine. Like everyone's high and like they're doing magic and hitting things with swords. It's fine. You're just like I, I don't know. It's David cool, dude. David and I put together a, a timeline on a whiteboard when we were watching. <laughs> I love, I, I truly love that, like, a show that fucking dumb that, like... <laughs> is it, like, a fun time thing? Is designed for and by meatheads is just, like, okay, nonlinear timeline. <laughs> Incredible choice. I love that show. Okay, I can't wait for it to come back. It's giving me everything that Game of Thrones should have given me. I think that's you true. Know? Yeah. Um, and okay. so Sato is, like... <laughs> They keep going back and forth in this thing where, like, Langdon's trying to downplay this thing and Sato's like, but would this guy really be, like, this, like, up on it if it were just, like, lies? Um, mm-hmm. Like, what are these ancient mysteries he's talking about? And he's like, listen, just because a lot of you believe in a thing doesn't mean it's true. Like, you know, I've heard of the hand of mysteries. It doesn't make it any truer than the fact that you've heard of Shangri-La, right? Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she's like, Racist, but, but what if it did? Um, and sorry, where are you? I don't know. 80? I, I, I'm somewhere in like the 78 to 80 region. I'm talking about the Yi Ching <laughs> on page 79, where Landon's <laughs> like, oh, you know, like like these books say people can get godlike powers if they got secret knowledge. Like the it's Yi a god awful chapter. Yeah. Um, it's 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 it's. it's for Dan Brown, a very long chapter, which is like to say it's like six pages long. <laughs> um, and the point is, they're unpacking like, is there a portal or not? Should you go find it or not? Yeah, and like it's like the portal's a metaphor, and she's like, <laughs> but what if it's not a metaphor? It sounds like he thinks it's an actual portal. Portal, and like is like, he's made the same error many zealots make, confusing metaphor with literal reality. Similarly, early alchemists had toiled in vain to transform lead into gold, never realizing that lead to gold was nothing but a metaphor for tapping into true human potential, that of taking a dull, ignorant mind and transforming it into a bright, enlightened one, which... Stupid and boring. Lena. Yes, I'm with you. Is he positing that early alchemists were not the best positioned to know whether or not the principle of the thing they were practicing was or was not a metaphor. They were the ones who fucking invented it. If they were chasing a metaphor, they would have fucking known it. They're the ones who did it. Like maybe the later alchemists were like reading the early alchemists and being like, well, we're transmuting lead into gold, like literally. But like, if that were the case and if it were a metaphor, the early alchemists would have been like, this is a metaphor. So we're not going to literally like, 
mercury poison ourselves to do this. I agree with you. And just on like a kind of branching off. Yeah, you're right. Like to point to early alchemists here really, really, you know, makes you think like, what, what are the late alchemists up to? Are they not toiling in vain? I mean, cause like, it, 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 like if the gold in lead into gold is a metaphor, then the late alchemists are totally in vain, obviously, because they are taking the earlier words literally. Mm-hmm. And it's like, in that case, the metaphor holds well, he, up. Well, but it's point, saying the early sorry, alchemists but... thought they were chasing a fact instead of a metaphor where the metaphor does not hold up because the early alchemists would have been the ones in a position to recognize that the yeah. text is not literal. The later ones coming back and reading an old text and taking it literally would have been the zealots doing it wrong. But the way that that, that Dan Brown writes it here makes it sound like... The late alchemists were somehow smarter and less in vain than the early ones, which just plainly doesn't make any sense. You would only get further and further away from the source material as time goes on. I hate Dan Brown so fucking much. So much. He's a fucking clown of a man. Um, Moving on. <laughs> yeah. And so Dan Brown, Robert Landon ultimately comes out like, so in addition to being like an idiot, this man's also highly educated. Actually, he doesn't say anything. He says mentally unstable, um, which I recognize yes. the same thing. Um, he says that he has done everything in perfect accordance with the ancient protocols. And again, the hand of mysteries is not an ancient protocol. It can't be any older than a couple of years. This is like when Antonin Scalia was like an ancient interpretation of the First Amendment law, even though the first <laughs> First Amendment case in the Supreme Court was like tried in 19 fucking 19. <laughs> Antonin Scalia, rest in piss. <laughs> oh, there was a really good meme on the law school memes page today that was like, it was like the um, the Drake meme, but it was like a happy and and sad Antonin Scalia <laughs> face, <laughs> and it was like sad, like the grocery store is out of toilet paper. Happy, I just realized I have a casebook full of Scalia descents. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I will admit he, he occasionally has a thing that's fun to read, but like, man, what an evil motherfucker. <laughs> uh, the man the, is awful. The oh, A-Lab, my. the A-Lab podcast series has a pretty good Antonin Scalia logo. I have yet to listen to that podcast, but I do follow them on, on the socials. I mean, I, 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 I got into it back when, uh, back when it was Mike Dicta the the podcast with every twitter lawyer together that eventually just like imploded into some still arcane internal drama and now there's a series of successor <laughs> legal podcast podcasts drama. oh forrest we should have some drama <laughs> we don't have enough i think you gotta have at least three podcasters for there to be like some real drama going on hey listener if you have a success <laughs> If you have a suggestion for what kind of drama you'd like to see on this podcast, let us know. We'll yeah. look into it. Um, um, I think, yeah, I think for true podcast drama, there's got to be at least three mics. But in Mike Dicta, there was like 25 mics overall. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it just became like true Hell chaos. Yeah. And now we've got 5-4 and A-Lab and um, Hostile Witness and I think at least one more legal podcast. Oh, Puck Bunny's kind of rose from the corpse of Mike Dicta. That one's a hockey <laughs> podcast. Um, <laughs> Stupid. Uh, <laughs> anyways, at that moment when Langdon and Sato aren't getting anywhere, um, 
Trish Dunn is... Sorry, just real quick. He alludes to, like, hey, the rotunda's full of ancient symbols. Lost symbols, if you will. Anyway. Um, So Trish Dunn runs her search engine, uh, or her her delegator spider, not expecting any results, but she'd come to expect that working with the Solomons meant never quite knowing the entire story, even when you're Googling a bunch of weird phrases. It's six paragraphs, I think. Uh, and it's just, she ran the search. All right. Chapter 20. Let's, let's get out of here. Okay. Chapter 20. It's another long Langdon Sato conversation. And this one, I think I actually have some fact checks in. It might be the next chapter I have some fact checks in. Anyways. It is 8 PM. So jot that down. I've got that Um, written down in my timeline. And he's looking at the smiling face of his Mickey Mouse watch. It is not 8 PM. It is 7.58 PM. Didn't I send you something recently that talked about a Mickey Mouse watch? Yes, I think you did on on Twitter or text. Oh, fuck. I forget (laughs) what it was. Was it, I think, oh, oh, no. I think it was maybe the the, um, murder mystery series I've been reading involves a Mickey Mouse watch. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's like a very severe American lesbian and she has a Mickey Mouse watch. (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) Love her. She's amazing. <laughs> she does sound like a better person than Robert Langdon. Um, okay, so Lynn's going about Peter, and Sato's like, are you suggesting this rotunda is somehow sacred to the ancient mysteries? Because he was like, the protocol was that the hand of mysteries had to be presented in a sacred place, like the rotunda, which is actually a sacred place. Mm-hmm. And... Langdon says the forefathers who had founded this capital city first named her Rome. I couldn't find anything that suggested that was true. They had named her the Tiber. I couldn't find anything that said that the Potomac was ever called the Tiber, although there was a tributary called like the small Tiber or something and erected a classical capital of pantheons and temples, all adorned with images of history's great gods and goddesses, Apollo, Minerva, Venus, Helios, Vulcan, Jupiter, which I would note uh, that's just Roman gods. That's not just history's great gods and goddesses. In her I center, I also hesitate to call Vulcan a great. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Vulcan, famously, in the Iliad. I, no, sorry, that's not Vulcan. That's Hephaestus. But same person. Same person. Um, we don't need to go into it. But in the Iliad, he's made a fool of. It's true. He's also kind of a cuck. That's what I was referring you know? to. <laughs> yeah. um, he's not kind of. He just like is. Is he is a hundred percent cocked by Aries. Listen, <laughs> if you're gonna date a bad bitch, you gotta be prepared for her to be a bad bitch. If you're going, to, if you're going to be that. given a bad bitch in marriage by the father of the gods, <laughs> um, without her agency playing into it at all. Then uh, you better you be prepared, must be for the prepared to be cucked. He does make a really <laughs> badass shield for Achilles. Uh, it must be said. The man is good for, good at his job. I'm just saying, like there are many people who are good at their jobs who aren't like major people, you know. So it's true. Hephaestus. Um, Vulcan. Yeah, well, in this book, but in the Iliad, Hephaestus. Mm-hmm. Anyways. At the center, of, as in many of the great classical cities, the founders had erected an enduring tribute to the ancients, the Egyptian obelisk, which I don't think the founders of D.C. erected the Washington Monument, did they? That can't have been... Don't ask me. This is your job. I didn't... I meant to look it up. But, like... 
question monument had to have been built like in the mid 19th century if not later right yeah it seems that seems right i don't think it was i mean when did they even build dc uh, the capital was not in dc for for the first while you know yeah construction began in 1848 oh get the fuck out of here and like this is gonna this is gonna come back a few times in the section where just like he's compressing time a lot to make it sound like the founders planned out this whole Washington D.C. shit and like they frankly didn't. Um, now centuries later, despite America's separation of church and state, LOL, the state-sponsored rotunda <laughs> glistened with ancient religious symbolism. There were over a dozen different gods in the rotunda, more than the original pantheon in Rome. Of course, the Roman pantheon had been converted to Christianity in 609, but this pantheon was never converted. Vestiges of its true history remained in plain view. There's a lot of vest, vest words in this uh, vestiges. Yeah, and Vesta. also the rotunda, Vesta? Vesta. the rotunda itself is a late 19th century addition to the Capitol building. Cool. Um, so he says Rotunda was designed as a tribute to one of Rome's most venerated mystical shrines, the Temple of Vesta. As far as I can tell, untrue, or at the very least, unsupported by any factual evidence. And mm. Sato, who I guess knows exactly one thing about ancient history, is like, as in the Vestal Virgins. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is just a. This is one of my favorite Dan Brownisms. Is like he's talking to a layman. And he's like, such and such thing. And they're like, oh, like one fact about history? And he's like, yeah, you got it, man. <laughs> so good. <laughs> this happens a lot with like his college students. Yeah. Who are like, you mean like Aries on the condom ra- on the condom package? <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so yeah. He's like, the Temple of Vesta had a big hole in the floor, and the rotunda was supposed to have a big hole in the floor where a sacred fire of enlightenment could be tended to by a sisterhood of virgins whose job it was to ensure the flame never went out. And Sato's like, uh, there's no hole in the center of the rotunda floor. That is a monk girl summer if I've ever heard of one, first of all. Um, And one of the first, like, straight up just true things in the thing here is that at some point, the center of the rotunda room did have a hole in the center that opened on to what is called the crypt beneath which was supposed to be the tomb of George Washington, even though he was never actually buried there. He was supposed to be for a little while, but his will said he wanted to be buried at Mount Vernon. Um, Mm -hmm. It is unclear to me when the hole in the floor of the Capitol Rotunda was covered. I couldn't actually find anything that told me when exactly that happened. I didn't look super hard, but I didn't find anything. What is not true is that... um, he says there was an eternal flame that burned in the crypt directly beneath us. It was supposed to be visible through the hole in the floor, making this room a modern temple of Vesta. This building even had its own Vestal Virgin, a federal employee called the Keeper of the Crypt, who successfully kept the flame burning for 50 years until politics, religion, and smoke damage snuffed out the idea. That is a myth. Um, it's mm-hmm. a like sort of vaguely supported by history myth, like... It's, it has a, this is weird long history where at some point in a round of budget cuts, a person got cut out of the Capitol like police force whose job was, um, it wasn't called keeper of the crypt. It was like, I don't know, custodian or something of the crypt. Mm-hmm. And their prescribed job duty was essentially to 
make sure that only one oil lamp per day was used up in the lighting of the place. Mm-hmm. And James Garfield, U.S. president, gave a speech where he kind of distorted this job and claimed that it was some kind of eternal flame situation, which it never was. It was just like oh. a lighting thing. Okay. And like this, this, this thing got like blown up over time into the myth of like this, you know, one of those things you can use as a talking point in Congress as like a useless federal job where it's like, oh, we're <laughs> throwing all this money to keep for the crypt to keep this fucking torch lit all day. And like no one sees it and it's like useless and whatever the fuck. It's just that it's one of those things. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by stories of George Washington, the reluctant God, you know, it's true of, uh, of like, hey, do you want to be the king? And he's like, no, thanks, I'm good. <laughs> and then they're like, hey, do you want to um, be deified forever? And he's like, no, like I'd like to retire if that's okay with you guys. And then they're like, do you want to be buried? Um, in like the right here, like in the capital. And he's like, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> the American I'm really good, you guys. Cincinnatus. Excuse uh, me. George Washington. He's the American Cincinnatus. Cincinnati? That's what the, that's what the city of Cincinnati is named for. Is it? What does it Cincinnatus is. mean? So Cincinnatus is this Roman guy who was given the same kind of like dictatorial power that like Julius Caesar was given. Mm-hmm. And he's the kind of model for it back in the Roman Republican period where, you know, he could have proclaimed himself king of Rome and done that but he was an honorable roman citizen he just wanted to retire back to his farm and let rome Uh, remain a republic i love it and so george washington is called the american cincinnati as as part of his myth building thing of like ah you know he had the chance to be the king of america but he just wanted to go back to his farm and own slaves (laughs) well uh, yes Correct. Um, but Over I Thanksgiving, I was in today. Philadelphia, and like right by the Declaration of Independence Museum is like the or no, the Liberty Bell Museum is like uh, <laughs> the original presidential home where George Washington lived, and there uh-huh. is that place has a lot of weird fucking placards about George Washington slaves, where it's like knows it should be focusing on them and like their plight, but like it's not fully willing to talk about like. Oh no. Quite like it's it goes pretty far into saying like, you know, they kept on running away and shit, but it's also like wants to be clear, George Washington was not particularly cruel to his slaves and in many ways was very affectionate towards them. It's like Uh, he's still on them. It was it was rough. I didn't I didn't enjoy it. Also I didn't enjoy going through like fifteen fucking metal detectors and getting padded down to see the fucking Liberty Bell. What am I gonna do to your fucking bell? (laughs) Break it? (laughs) Am I gonna break (laughs) Liberty? Sorry, broke it. God damn it. Um, yes. Uh, okay. Um, Apotheus to George so Washington he's explaining... is, is uh, segues neatly as I'm. I think you're already reading ahead into um, Langdon being like, you know, this whole place is a shrine to like the god of George Washington. In fact, um, the, the the mural on the ceiling is called the Apotheosis of George Washington. Um, it shows George Washington being transformed into a god. It's right above your head. And we're going to talk about that painting more in the next episode of the Dan Brown Code. We made it. In we the meantime, made it this far. Lena, do you have an angel for this section? Do we do demons or angels first? It doesn't matter. Um, 
an angel for this. I mean, I guess Catherine? Because I was going to say Trish. I was going to say Trish is a problematic figure. She's a problem. And I'm sure Catherine will be soon. But... I just I really appreciate like a like a strong sapphic character, you know, and uh, and and last episode we mentioned her Mediterranean skin. Uh, she still has that going for her. She has her gray eyes still happening. Um, she did get dunked on by her brother for a chapter, um, but she was a sophomore, <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I think for Give my angel, I am going to have to um, pick a problematic fave and say Trish, even mm-hmm. though she did sell Palantir to the NSA. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a weak defense. I don't think it's actually morally defensible, but all I can say is um, she was like 21 or 22 when she did so and was therefore an idiot. And um, I'm I'm sorry, Trish, you shouldn't have done that, but... I think your I think your heart's in the right place. You're just dumb. Yeah, yeah. All right, you want to do demons? I would love to do demons. Who's your demon for? My demon here is, I mean, it's fucked up to just say Robert Langdon. My demon is the CIA Office of Security. <laughs> no, my demon is the CIA. But there is one. My demon the is CIA. my demon is the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States government. Uh, if you want a reason why, um, you know, I don't know where to start with you. <laughs> just, just the state <laughs> of the world. Um, I'm going to have to say Sato and I'll tell you why. And it's, you know, it's similar, but like, I don't know how you come up in the, in, in a concentration camp and then say like, you know what we need is more military might and security, more unbridled security power that's what we need not koromatsu didn't teach us anything it's shocking and 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 very confusing and really my demon as always is dan brown because (laughs) because dan brown wrote this character and dan dan daniel danny boy what do you think is going on with japanese people god he's such a psychopath um (laughs) do you have a grade on this section for dan brownness I didn't feel too Dan Brownie this time. There wasn't much in the way of treasure hunt. We did get some like strong hands lifting Mr. Robert Langdon. Um, we got some like, what if I told you that everything you've ever seen is an ancient symbol? Um, I'm still not sure that symbologist is a job. (laughs) 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 Um, um, but, uh, I'll give it a C plus, I guess. I think I'm going to give it more of a B plus on Dan Brownness. Um, I might be conflating this with sections coming up because like I gave myself a padding of a few chapters to make sure I wasn't going to run out of fact checking content. But in Mm. doing the fact checking research, I felt like there was a lot of strong Dan Brown half ass Googling going on. Mm. And Mm. that to me Uh, is. I agree with you on the fact side of things. There is a lot of that of like, but you got atonement, right? You can't, you can't deny he did that. get that right and i mean like you know it's probably the the archetypal dan brown is probably some mixture of the bullshit exposition along with the action writing but mm-hmm. like for me personally what like i really love about dan brown is the bullshit exposition writing 
Um, and see, I'm in it for the action, so I, I yeah. can see why we would differ it in this in this respect. And then it's yeah. enjoyability. Oh, uh, I didn't like it. <laughs> no, not <neither laughs> that. Um, I think probably a D, frankly. Yeah, it's too much exposition for it. Nothing she, happens. Catherine spends three three chapters just chilling in the dark. Um, nothing. It, we're on page eighty four of this book, and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. All we know is like Sato has been introduced. Langdon has found a hand. Is the like Langdon goes to DC and finds a hand are the only things that have happened in this book at page eighty four. Well, they've run a spider. That's the that's the other thing, I guess. But yeah, yeah but it's like, true. That's not a no, you're thing right. There's happens. nothing going on. Also, I want to see more from Malach. Frankly, he seems yes. to be a man with a plan. He has things to do. He has like eight hours to figure it the fuck out. It is already eight p.m. He pulled off a little Scooby Doo disguise, and that's fucking it. It is eight p.m. How much more night does he have? Four hours to obscure the light. <laughs> is it four hours? Well, the I mean, it depends on depends, depends on the definition of night, right? Yeah. Anyways, I mean, I'm um, sure it'll it'll end with like Catherine Bigelow and no, not Catherine Bigelow. Sorry, Catherine Solomon. <laughs> 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 Catherine Solomon and Robert Langdon checking into a hotel at daybreak to fuck for three days. <laughs> Anyways, everybody, please follow our podcast on Twitter where we regularly post. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but just do it anyway. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Lena Jamili, L I N A J E M I L I. I'm also on Twitter at Wishbone Ulysses, all one word. Um, and I'm, you may find. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, in a perfect world, I'll be back on Mastodon at Wishbone Ulysses at mastodon.social, but who knows? Who's to say? Um, you may find that we post more often now because the whole world is on lockdown. And what else are we going to do? God willing. You I've know? been making a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons maps. <laughs> I've been learning how to use the <laughs> freeware versions of all the Adobe ed- photo editing software. I've gotten pretty good at GIMP now. I finally learned how to use the fucking vector editing program. GIMP is uh, hard. In car- in- ink- Inkscape. Uh-huh. I've got I've got some pretty impressive shit going on. My brother wants to play a Dungeons and Dragons one shot as a bachelor party. And so I'm going kind of all out for it. Hey, Forrest, if you end up like having a regular Dungeons and Dragons meeting, let me know. I'm into that. I will. I mean, right now I have one going with my brother and his neighbors. Um, Okay. I mean, like if you want to like gather perhaps at Chris's Poopin and your other friends from the West Coast and you want to do like a remote situation. That might be in the cards. I know Chris likes D&D. Um... Uh, did you watch the episode, the season of Riverdale that was about D and D? I'm most of the way through it. Oh hell um, yeah! That's what I'm <laughs> Griffins and about. gargoyles. Hell yeah, man! It's what so a good, good TV I love show. Riverdale, it's so good. I'm I'm so behind on Riverdale. I'm Have so you watched to Catch Up? I th- we did we talk? We I don't think we did because I don't think I watched it until I was in Boston. Have you watched any of the CW's Nancy Drew? Mm-mm, I have not. So, <laughs> it is it is very Riverdale. It's like the oh, acting's less good. Yes. Um Aww. but like it's kind of fun to watch. And like lest you think that this is like uh your mother's Nancy Drew, this series opens up with Nancy Drew just like straight up fucking in a mechanics garage to remind you <gasps> this is the CW baby. This Nancy <laughs> Drew fucks. <laughs> 
anyway, thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> but oh, sorry. So yeah, follow us on the socials. We're on Facebook as well. Tell your friends. Leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Um, and uh, stay safe out there. Make sure you're washing your hands. You can sing the chorus of "Hit Me Baby" one more time. That's twenty seconds. It'll give you a good timer. You know those uh, memes that have like the lyrics for a song underneath the hand washing steps. Yeah, yeah. I saw one today that was just like an ellipsis under every single one, and the last one was tequila. <laughs> <laughs> really good. I did a, a a series of Instagram stories last night. Uh, of various songs you can sing for 20 seconds so I'll make that a highlight if you follow me on Instagram at lena.gem uh, a lot of classicists did like oh you can memorize like six lines of a uh, classic heroic pentameter like the open to the Iliad <laughs> you could do that oh, I was like fuck out of here. some hey, Boris Johnson shit on the scene. Uh, Africa by Toto is 23 seconds um well, um, or if you see the version of the synthesizer solo.